it's another one of these. <laughs> Us just looking at the, the new product fresh off the presses and try to digest it in less than a few days. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a, a timely review from Dice Funk, a tabletop role-playing brand, I guess. We don't do much of... <laughs> Uh, much unboxing or whatever, but uh, whenever a particularly large uh, product comes out that we're interested in, this is only the second time. I don't know. I'm acting like this is a tradition going back centuries, but uh, we did a review of the Spelljammer release that I thought was really fun. And now we have a new, actually it's a three book set that comes in a big box here. Oops. I just made a big bonk with it. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is the, yeah. Uh, the second, I think, of these sort of particular three book sets here, Spelljammer being the first, but this one is the, uh, what, the Planescape Adventures into the Multiverse box Yeah, set. Multiverse stuff hot right now. Everyone's in the Spider-Verse. Everyone's getting uh, Kanged. Are you aware of Kang from Marvel's <laughs> Kang, Kang films? Kang-brained. <laughs> yeah, we're, about, we're getting uh, Loki'd right now. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how often we're going to do these, but I feel like uh, that one was a big success, and I have a lot to say. Uh, something we're going to be referring to a lot in this episode is that we have done a Planescape campaign on Dice Funk Season 6 of the show. Um, so I have a lot of thoughts as someone who's run a big Planescape thing. Another great touchstone is the video game Planescape Torment, which is obviously a huge influence on not just me, but... Uh, this book or these books we yeah, had. So. Absolutely. Like, we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about the adventure proper in the book there. But yeah, if you're a Planescape, it's clear that the writers of this were Planescape Torment fans. And there is a little bit, uh, there's a bit of the design of the adventure itself that is like laser focused on like, you know, fan service for that, you know, and understandably so for sure. Yeah, so I think it's pretty obvious what we're doing here from context. This is a review of this product instead of your normal episode. Uh, we should probably introduce the concept of Planescape if you haven't listened to season six of Dice Funk, which is in 1994. Uh, there was a this was second edition at the time, I believe. Yes, it would be second edition at the time. Yeah. Yeah, they re- released a kind of multiversal setting thing. I think the lead designer was uh, David Cook, uh, kind of a, f- a famous guy in the scene. Um, and this this thing is notable for a number of different um, elements. One is with the philosophy of it. There's a number of factions which represent different uh, philosophical takes on the universe. It's very a pretentious kind of thing, which is why I love it. Uh, there's a lot of <laughs> re- religious stuff. It's like set kind of in the afterlife of Dungeons and Dragons. So, you know, when you're playing a normal campaign, people are always talking about, like, you know, Tiamat and uh, Tyr and Saiyanine and stuff. And, hey, if you want to go visit those folks, you do that Mm -hmm. in Planescape. Um, So this is, like, it's the high-concept kind of afterlife multiverse thing, uh, which it has its fans. It wasn't a huge uh, success in the sense that it's been 30 <laughs> years since, uh, you know, there've been any meaningful, oh, there, there, you know, there's there's little books here and there, but like, this is the big return of Planescape. It's not like it's been thriving the entire time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one thing I find kind of interesting about the original Planescape book, just double checking something, like one note is that the illustrations were done by an artist named Tony, uh, Tony uh, D. Terlizzi. And um, the alt art for the book, at least I know that the for the books, I think were done by Tony in particular. So like another like little nod back to the origins of its design and such. But yeah, in terms of like a form, like a formalized product campaign setting for Planescape, it's 
like Spelljammer, it's been multiple editions of D&D, decades since the prior release. And I think, yeah, like you sort of alluded to, Planescape feels pretty relevant in terms of like player interest and stuff right now, not just because of general multiverse interests, but also just because it allows for a lot of opportunities to have alternate views of traditional types of creatures that might have been bounded by rigid alignment sort of treatments. Um, one common thread you'll find when you're reading through these books is a lot of creatures depicted in very non-conventional settings if you're into like Faerun-specific stuff. Um, and that's also very fun because it allows for it to be pretty, allows for a range of more lighthearted takes on these philosophical topics while you blend it all together. Yeah, the normal, uh, like you said, Faerunian or like, you know, uh, Forgotten Realms D&D yeah. setting, at least as written, is like all gnolls are evil. All elves yeah. are like ha haughty and superior. Like there's a kind of um, almost essentialist Gygaxian bent to it where like one of the the, the hooks of Planescape is like, here's a uh, an angel who's corrupt. Here's a demon who wants to be better. Literally one of the party members in Planescape Torment is a succubus who's trying not to suck anymore this you know what i'm saying <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh a fall from grace it's a it's a it's a great setting I, another thing that jumps out at me um is actually something that's in like the introduction of the setting book which is backstage of reality i think it's such a clever way of putting it it's like you're backstage of D D. like here are all the big bads here are all the schemers and then they're just like ch <laughs> chilling at the bar you're just like seeing yeah. what what the movers and shakers doing when they're not tormenting level two rogues <laughs> Like, I'll, I'll like the, the the just the first book, Sigil and the Outlands, is honestly, I have one big issue with the book. I'm going to bring up to you here, but there's so much less like setting stuff in this book that makes it very fun to imagine just running a campaign, just kind of hanging out in Sigil and the Outlands, that it's surprisingly inspiring whereas i felt much less inspired by the spelljammer book because so much of that was on like explaining how spell jamming kind of works and the ships and stuff like that whereas this i felt way more like ooh, interesting kind of yeah I, it's, it's interesting you compare it to Spelljammer because obviously that was our first book review and we're going to make some of those comparisons. But um, I was literally just looking up David Cook, the designer of Planescapes, like, uh, you know, his CV. And I, here's from the Wikipedia page. When TSR was looking to replace Spelljammer after the setting ended, they suggested a new campaign built on the first edition Manual of the Planes, which right. was a book that told you about the structure of the universe. The idea sat dormant for a year, but then Cook picked it up and invented Planescape as a result. So it comes directly from from Spelljammer. Um, also, mm -hmm. if you don't know, Cook went on to work on the Fallout games and uh, Elder Scrolls Online. So he's still out there. He's still doing his thing. As far mm -hmm. as I know, not a problematic guy. I try, I'm trying not to stand him, but he seems cool. <laughs> he, he touched a lot of things I really like. So also, uh, Tony Terlizzi, the, the artist, also did a yeah. lot of art for Magic the Gathering. And I think the thing he's best known for is a book series I've never read called The Spiderwick Chronicles. I don't know if you're aware mm. of this. Um, I think they right, might have gotten right. a movie. Yeah. Yes, there was a 2008 adaptation of the series. Um, I'm not familiar with it myself, but yeah, like um, it's a it's neat seeing like it's kind of neat to see these sort of products come by because it kind of one traces through a lot more of the history of these other non-forgotten realms areas of D&D &D in general, but also just like 
there's just some fun ideas all around where you kind of go a little more outside of just, oh, sword and sorcery, like Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, where do you want to start first with all this? Because there's a lot of content to go over here. Yeah, there sure are. I, I When I got these books, I said, I'm just going to read them all in one sitting because there are three and we'll record like immediately. And it actually took me like two days because there's a lot here and I wanted to read every word. So mm-hmm. um you know, this will be still relatively timely, but uh, not not breaking news like I was hoping. I think we should start with the the setting book, Sig- Sigil in the Outlands. I said Sigil because uh, previously it was specified that it's not pronounced like the word Sigil, which is mm. how it's spelled. But I didn't see anything. Maybe I missed it. Is there anything in the book that discusses the pronunciation? Is Wizards dropping uh, that strange arbitrary thing about the pronunciation? I, 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 I was not familiar with that. If I was to double check the chapter, like I don't see any information on there about like pronunciation like it'd be nice to have some more pronunciation guides in general i know there's actually a gag about one of the gate towns having a name that no one can agree how it's pronounced um xaos i actually wrote down uh zaos jaos cross aos if i wanted to be cheeky about it chows um but obviously it's kind of like meant to be like chaos because it's derived to uh, drive from limbo but yeah like that's probably one thing that would have been nice from a setting thing, just getting an idea of like what is sort of like the expected name or what are common pronunciations people might use for these things. But yeah. Um, but yeah, the first book about Sigil and everything else. I I will just kind of lead off by one note. There's one chapter in this entire thing that's about character options, and it is very, very thin in content for people to the point that when I see advertisements on Reddit, and I, I'm just going to share with you, Austin, some images I've shared on the server here, of images advertising the product. You see uh, things like the Mustaval, Gardenal, and the Hound Archon, and the first words being planner character options, and, player, and people might see that and think, oh, are these new player races? No. Mm-hmm. There's no new player races. There's two backgrounds, a handful of feats, and some spells. And that's all there is for player options in this book. <laughs> yeah, usually when I buy a and d book, what I'm looking for is those kind of player options. Because, you know, I, I've been a human, an elf, a dwarf, or whatever. Like, I've, I've been all that, so I would need more stuff. Mm-hmm. So I would normally be much more disappointed. This is a unique situation in where I'm way more into the, the flavor and the, you know, the setting and stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm not that disappointed that disappointed but it is notable there's no subclasses this the spells are extremely limited and specific um so yeah you're not here for like more uh character sheet stuff correct i mean uh there's a lot of interesting information about how you could possibly make a planar oriented character but that's going to be a lot of just making up at the table the this is best thought of as a more gm centered world setting information a menagerie of creatures and then the adventure attached to it there. But yeah, um, uh, striking amount of detail in the book once you get to chapter two about the city of doors and just so much in there, you could probably just use this chapter alone and actually run a, a campaign entirely in the city. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's run a Planescape campaign in the last decade or so probably has basically just skimmed Wikipedia, you know, and then just kind of freeballed it from there. Because if you just get a couple of the main concepts, the the possibilities are pretty infinite. Like, if I didn't do a podcast, 
like I probably would only do Planescape campaigns because mm-hmm. I'm not that interested in the traditional heroic fantasy. Even when I do campaigns on the show that are, you know, similar to heroic fantasy, like I do still slip in things like, oh, the philosopher slod or like the insane mm-hmm. Modra, you know, just some Planescape bullshit because that's just where I'm pulled uh, just by nature. So. Um, another recurring element of this episode is going to be uh, what Austin would do if we go back to Planescape in a future season. So prepare for that. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm. I find it really neat though how it does a good job of really drilling in the point about philosophy being a major focal point and not necessarily presenting any individual philosophy as like the de facto correct one um, because of the intersection that Sigil and the Outlands has with all the Outer Planes and how those different personalities and stakes play out within the city of Doors and everywhere around it. Although surprisingly Um, less in the city than you would think. We're going to get there, mm -hmm. but... uh, So introduction, you get the kind of rundown that we've given you that this is the backstage of reality where all the the super powerful people kind of hang out in the afterlife. Uh, There's some uh, philosophical concepts that are really important, such as uh, belief making things true or like shifting reality. Uh, That Everything is kind of subjective and negotiable. Uh, There's the rule of three, which is like Mm -hmm. three things tend to happen in threes, which is just like DM bullshit or something happens twice, you could force it a third time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's a very, very flexible thing. But yeah, once you get that kind of introductory, you know, summary, I think it's literally two pages. We get into the character options. I don't know if you want to get into anything with these backgrounds or stuff specifically, but yeah, we have a couple of plainer backgrounds. Yeah, the big, the main gist here is these are, this is templated in a similar manner as what we saw in the Dragonlance book and the Strixhaven book. So these are backgrounds that are tied to the setting and beyond that will have feats associated with them that sort of set you up at level one. The feat that's most important here is called Sign of the Outer Planes. It basically just allows you to pick a particular alignment or plane area that your character sort of has an infusion towards. And then at level four, there's an upgrade feat, depending on whether you have a lawful, evil, chaotic, good, or outland-focused um, sort of focal, or you can just be a planar wanderer. And it's just like a little bit, mostly ribbon features that are kind of nice add-ons, but that's effectively what the two backgrounds are. You have the gate warden and the planar philosopher. And the latter one, uh, I will say to their credit, they do a good job of at least adding like simple one sentence summations of the different philosophies because there's 12 factions in Sit and Sigil, and that can lead to just a lot of you know, instead of leaving through several pages of the philosophies, you got a nice little compact understanding of what they are, or you can just invent your own philosophy, nothing's stopping you. They even tell you how to do that, how to make your own faction. Yeah, that's the first um, uh, installment of if we go back to Planescape, an Austin Yorsky product. One of the ideas I was kicking around of reading this book was like instead of doing what we did in season six, which is where everyone started uh, like freshly uh, introduced to Planescape, and then I let you you know pick from the factions if you want. Lauren's character became a society of sensation person, yep. and uh, Laura's person became a was it Doom Guard? I think she her character had quite an arc, um, but then the other two yeah. just didn't pick factions which i guess is fine but if i if we went back um there's a couple of different 
things I've been thinking about. One is that what if the they they make their own faction? The party of right. season twenty eight or whatever is like a baby faction. It's just coming together, and all the player characters get together to decide what it is. Um, I think right. that's a that's one potential cool option here. Um, and also, as you said, there's these brief summaries um, mm-hmm. of each of the. The factions, which is very helpful. One of the things I found really surprising was uh, when I sent, you know, a list of the factions to the players for season six. They mm-hmm. all found it very intimidating and like, uh, you know, off-putting. Even like a two-sentence description. They were like, "This is so much homework. You're killing me, Austin." <laughs> it's yeah. We have twelve factions. It's going to be difficult to summarize it all the way down. Though honestly, I wonder if you could make like a, a table and put them all around on the pins and stuff. It's just hard to say. Um, I, I had big Ravnica vibes going on here. Honestly, <laughs> when it came yeah, to I'm- yeah. Yeah, Magic the Gathering's Ravnica it came after this, I think, Mark Rosewater. I don't know if he's ever said that it was specifically Planescape-inspired, but it, it would be hard for it not to have been you know, somewhere in his mind because mm-hmm. uh, it's the same kind of big city with pe- factions that represent uh, specific philosophical things. And, yeah, it's, it's very similar. It's interesting that Ravnica, I think, has gone on to be way more successful. Um, mm-hmm. The Magic is, like, you know, ten times as profitable as D&D in, in the, you know, the paper space at least and uh they go back to ravnica all the time so yeah one thing i think about ravnica is the distinction between the factions in sigil in planescape is that in ravnica um they also have the added thing that they serve like some basic like labor function within the city like the golgari being related to like sewer and waste sort of stuff there and i think that adds an extra layer of just like huh this city has this weird way in which it works which it's not necessarily like completely lost here, but it's a different design space there, which I find neat. Um, yeah, this feels like a first draft, right? Like you have things yeah. like the Dustmen who like are the work in the morgue. They're kind of like the Golgari of Ravnica, right. but then there's other ones that don't line up at all. So, um, yeah. and also they, they've been refining it. Like in the original re- release of Planescape, I think there was 15 factions, and then mm-hmm. there was an, an adventure path or you know like a book that came out called Faction War, where there was a bunch of the factions were destroyed or new ones came up. We can talk about that if you want, but you know season mm-hmm. six is about the second faction war, World War Two. You know that we did it again. Right. So I mean a for if we went back to Planescape on, on my show, we wouldn't do another faction war. But um, the, once again, I think there's a couple differences between um, the last time we left these factions and how they are now. Like the faction war uh, uh, split the mercy killers into two factions and now they're back as one again with no explanation which is fine I don't, I don't, they could have completely re overhauled the entire thing if it was good it, you know if it's good it's good but uh, right. i think that's interesting i don't know that there's a direct uh narrative continuity here yeah um and uh that's basically it for the character options though right you have these handful of feats you have the two spells gate seal and warp sense and magic items because they have to explain what mimmers are right is it mimmers or mimers i forget i mean in in god of war when you run across the norse character mimir they say mimir who is a severed head that kratos carries around in in norse mythology he's a guy who gets his head cut off and the head keeps talking so that i believe it's pronounced Mimir, but I could be wrong. Yeah, they're they're talking severed heads in the in the Norse style. Almost everything in the setting is taken from religion, which is like my whole shit. That's my entire of course. (laughs) (laughs) You don't don't say. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like they have to have uh, Mimir in here. It's Planescape. 
play tournament, you 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 like you you need to have that in there. The portal compass is a cute item, sensory stone necessary for the society of sensation. So like, it's just enough. But then you get to the next chapter when it actually starts going to the city, and then it just kind of starts going like crunchy, like flavorful details about how the city works and how it feels to be in there. Yeah, so uh, this next section, this is a uh, chapter two of this first book we're talking about, The City of Doors, introduces what I call like the New York City of Dungeons and Dragons. It's like the Pretty biggest, much. most diverse uh, city. I like the art in here is uh, really good. It shows everything's spiked. Everything's covered in blades, like mm-hmm. the iconic Lady of Pain, who is on the cover of this book. We didn't mention the the beautiful cover with uh, her, her terrifyingness uh, and her bladed headdress in the front. We do love to see her. Um, but yeah, it gives you stuff that, you know, like the weather and all, all these this kind of fluff and flavor for the city. Is there anything that you want to highlight here in, in this chapter? Because a lot of it is just like, you know, you could tweak this if you want. If you want uh, the gravity to, gravity to be lower or the, mm-hmm. it to be rainier, there's nothing stopping you. I, I do find it fun to go how many different ways they have to explain that teleportation magic doesn't work the way that you would expect it to. And because you have extra dimensional space, banishment, planar travel, summoning teleportation, teleportation circle, all that doesn't work. The funniest thing I like about it is that if you try to summon something, it only works if that target exists within sigil, a sigil at all. So like if you're trying to summon a, a, a jinn, if there's not one that matches in the city, you can't summon it. But if there is, you summon that specific one, which I think is pretty uh, – it, it allows for some silly interactions and stuff that can be fun. Um, yeah, the whole the whole thing about portals, it's a very uh, like foundational aspect of it because you don't want just people just teleporting all over all creation. It also would introduce like huge story problems. Why doesn't Tiamat just t- teleport into the space and own all of her enemies or whatever? So yeah, the, there's ha- you have to have this kind of cosmic excuse that like things work differently and there's a character, the Lady of Pain, who will simply uh, you know eviscerate uh, you fr- from the beginning of, to the end of your lifespan <laughs> all simultaneously what does it say here the lady of pain is omnipresent unknowable and invincible yeah any creature that targets her with an attack spell or any hostile or prying effect in some cases so much as speaking to her is assailed <laughs> by overwhelming pain and immediately drops one hit point so yeah you can't simp the lady of pain not happening if you <laughs> ask if you ask her how's the weather you will be thrown into the mazes <laughs> She's so cool. Yeah. Uh, in my campaign, uh, you know, uh, listeners know there was kind of a plot twist with her whole existence. I, I wonder what I would do if we went back because uh, while she is iconic, there is li- she can't really get involved in that much. I've always said that she kind of represents the, the DM, just that like I can make things happen. Like uh, I want you to have fun, have a good adventure. But if you start trying to be, you know, disruptive, like I could just say your head explodes, <laughs> you know, uh, but even in universe, she can kind of represent represent like that you know in this wacky wild world of angels and demons just like there are some things that people don't know like there Mm -hmm. are mysteries out there no matter how powerful or cool your character is like the 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 reaches of existence are infinite so i think that's it's cool in and out of universe i I think the coolest detail about the lady of pain section for me honestly is just just the 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 two paragraphs they devote to explaining locking the cage, just because it's one of the things we're like, well, how can all these factions kind of get along? The answer is because if they don't, the Lady of Pain will just shut down the city 
unilaterally, turn off all the portals, let sewage run through the streets until they sort out their differences. Yep. Just so that, that's a plot point in, uh, you know, Faction War, that classic book, and uh, Die, Vecna, Die. Uh, mm-hmm. Vecna, interestingly, you know, was a major villain in, like, second edition, then disappeared for, like, 30 years until, my understanding is, became the villain of Critical Role. Uh so at least that that first campaign. So uh, I, I don't know I, what Wizards is thinking about with Vecna anymore. There's one mention in the adventure later that I'm really excited to get to. But um. yes, I, I know exactly which Steve you're talking about. So we'll get there <laughs> later on. I came across the same thing. I'm like, what the fuck? This is hilarious. <laughs> Anyways, um, next, I, I took a bunch of screenshots, honestly, as I was willing to going along to take note of like, because there's just so many. There's so much. There's so much content because once you get past the Lady of Pain stuff, then you get into the factions, and it goes through all the factions, showing their symbols, headquarters, the aligned planes, who their members are, their epithet, uh, the epithets, and goes plenty of detail. Where like, oh yeah, cool. You if you want to play a character for one of these or make up characters for them, I think there's a decent amount of information here to kind of like play off of pretty easily. Yeah, like I said before, the, this list of factions is a l- little different than the last time we saw them. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't know if you want to go with like faction by faction, but there there are some notable changes, like the Revolutionary League, uh, mm-hmm. which were like the anarchists, are now the hands of havoc. My right. assumption is that because there are, are a number of real world political parties called the Revolutionary League, uh, mm. like the Re- Revolu- Revolutionary League of Palestine uh, comes to mind in our current moment, that maybe right. Wizards just doesn't want to even and uh, be associated, doesn't even want to be accused of referencing. Right. Uh, <laughs> and that's so fine. Hands I mean, of that, Havoc. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's fine. Hands of Havoc sounds very Rakdos, honestly. <laughs> so it's just like... <laughs> yeah. It, it's that was one of the things I was doing, honestly, was just going through and just being like, okay, what, what color pair are these? <laughs> and just going with that. Um, one of my favorite details was the Fraternity of Order because the members are listed as spellcasters, lawyers, and con artists. And I just think that's very <laughs> funny. And those are the three they have for the high courts who discover laws to find truth includes con artists, which I find just great. Yeah, another uh, great detail is the the Faded, who are like the uh, libertarians. Their members include bullies, moguls, and warlords. <laughs> so... <laughs> Got got their asses. They're they're, uh, they're the takers, you know, from Iskard. <laughs> Another notable uh, change here, or maybe not so notable. It stuck out to me is that the dusters or the dustmen from previous mm. edition are now the heralds of dust. I don't know why. Maybe it's not. Uh, there's no significance. Maybe that you know other title was taken, or I, I have no idea. I, I, I didn't think- look into it, but. I think part of it is because Dusters is the epithet for the group, so they they they, they, they the group has a different name um, from that there because like all the groups have a different term for it because you have the Defiers for Athar, the Bleakers for the Bleak Cabal, the Sinkers for the Doom Guard, Takers for Faded, the Governors <laughs> for the Fraternity of Order, spelled G U V N E R S, so very good. And then Hands of Havoc have the Wreckers, Harmonium is the Hardheads, and Heralds of Dust are the Dusters in that respect. Yeah. So uh, there's, so yeah, some other uh, factions have like dropped off. The uh, the was the Ring Givers. Yeah, the Ring Givers are now listed as a minor faction. They don't have their own like whole section and symbol. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, the the Mercy Killers have reformed stuff like that. One of the th- my favorite uh, ones to read was the Athar who. Uh, mm-hmm. 
figured very heavily in season six. And I love that there, it feels like their description is written to be more in line with my portrayal. <laughs> like I thought yeah. I took a little bit of liberties and like, no, they're like so exactly the way they are. In, in I, I was thinking I literally that, right. Cause you can take the faith art be like, yeah, okay. The gods just are, you know, in invoking the forms. They don't act. They aren't actually these things like, yeah, that's a as, as hell. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. That- they're, su- they're such haters. Um, the believers of the source are now the mind's eye, which I think actually happened in the book Doom War or mm. f- Faction War. Um, so, yeah, the my- I think it says here the mind's eye was formed by it, it says uh, believers in the source is what it says. I thought it was believers of the source. Maybe mm. it doesn't matter that much, but uh, that is what it says here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. I can see that in the sign of one there. Um, and then let's see your society of sensation, pretty straightforward. And then the transcendent order. I like the fact that the two transcendent order, like representatives they have as NPCs as like characters in the, uh, in the menagerie include like a dragonborn monk. That was kind of funny to see in there. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, um, I also just like the transcendent order because it, its members are rescuers, daredevils, and athletes. It's like, okay, we just run on adrenaline as much as we can. <laughs> yeah. They're jocks. Um, they, are, they are the jocks, absolutely. The great gymnasium is their headquarters. Of course they are. Yeah. I think later in the book, there's like a section where there's like uh, NPC templates for each one. Each kind of faction gets like um, just kind of like their generic guy, uh, which mm-hmm. I, think I like that a lot. It's it's good to, um, you know, help characterize them because they all have like a symbol and a philosophy. But like the idea that like, you see one of them coming, and you're like, oh, it ha- they have the uh, pole arms with the little grabby hands. So I know that those are the, you know, the cops. <laughs> so we got to get out of here. So I thought mm-hmm. that was a, a good detail. I don't remember. I don't remember that from earlier books. Once we get past the factions, including like you mentioned, the the, the three minor ones, the Free League, the Encantarium, and then the Ring Givers, we then get to the Gazetteer, the, the Gazetteer which just goes over all the wards and what goes on in them. Um, yeah. It's interesting because I thought this is what the whole uh, adventure would be about, but all, a mm-hmm. lot of this detail is not does not come up in the adventure that much, That we're, the, the second book we're going to talk about, I think. Um, and this, so th- there's parts where it says, like, if your players want to hang around in Sigil for a while, just let them wander around. This is, like, the, the part where you would, you would reference this. But all, yep. all of this could go completely unused if you didn't want to hang around in the city itself. Yeah, that's kind of why I meant that like this chapter on its own could be the basis for an entire campaign just by building content off of what they had. I like how each ward has a list of encounters that kind of helps flavor what the shenanigans are in that area. It lists what factions are found in that area and then kind of goes over key locations. Um, and honestly, it's the, the wards are all pretty fun to read. Do you have any particular ward you want to go over, particularly because you have the clerks, hive, lady, lower market, and then under yeah i mean we could we could definitely talk about these i I think the first thing that jumps to mind looking over these sections is the little uh mimir asides we haven't mentioned yet oh right yeah uh, those yeah there's often a framing device in DD books where it's like oh here's volo's commentary on the monster or you know here's xanathar telling you you suck or whatever and in this (laughs) one it's uh, the mimir which uh, in this book in particular it's the robotic skull i think in one of their ones it's mort the character from planescape torment um, so th- those are always fun little asides. I like those too. We also didn't talk about the, uh, disclaimer that all D and D books have that are unique to the book. Uh, this one oh, says, right. 
Disclaimer, the factions of the City of Doors are not responsible for symptoms associated with accidentally happening upon the cage. Please consult your doctor if you experience any of the following upset stomach, nausea, existential dread, clethrophobia, or an irresistible urge to wax poetic about philosophies relating to the multiverse. That, that feels targeted. Is, yeah, I was gonna, that last one is laser targeted on you there. <laughs> I'm oh, going to Google clethrophobia. You can talk about the wards a little bit. <laughs> sure. Thing. So yes, um, for each of the wards, uh, like I said, it goes over. Each one has like eight encounters. So to kind of go over some uh, uh, encounters, I found it particularly funny. If you go to the clerk's ward, uh, which was the one there, I thought was kind of funny. Um, ah, yes, the ob the number eight, the obnoxious equinal cardinal, braze atop a street side soapbox. They attempt to go to character into a cynical debate about the future of Sigil. I'm just like, that's very funny. I just love that. Just the idea of it. You just get pulled into an argument in the clerk's ward and you're just like, I don't even want to be here. Ah, you want to be somewhere else then? That's it. <laughs> like, it just try to be the most annoying, like, debate bro in, in the clerk's ward. Um, I also, one of the things I like a lot is that the art, I think most of the map art was done by uh, this artist, uh, uh, Jared Blando, and the, the colors and the, the really vivid depictions are just really fun to take in, too, um, for just the straight-up maps. Uh, but as you go through each of the wards, you get a good breakdown, just sort of like the, the general temperament of the area, uh, the, the factions that are in there, and then the most important buildings of the area as well and yeah, like i said it's enough where you could basically kind of do a few little adventures in there once you get to hive ward hive ward is probably my favorite of them just because of the grease pit there which is like the food district of all of sigil and they have this amazing art in there of just showing up all these little food carts set up and stacked on top of each other um it's probably like if i had to pick an area i'd be like oh let's go to hive ward i want to hang out there um, that's a good I... point. I actually wanted to mention the map that came in this set because, uh, you know, you sometimes get maps in these books and it's fine. It's like, oh, here's a picture, you know, of, uh, you know, the local area and it has the landmarks or whatever. I really liked the one that came with this because, uh, you know, Planescape is spatially illogical. All distances are variable and, you know, simultaneously, uh, short and infinite or whatever. And so it's just mm -hmm. kind of, uh, this artistic representation of the places. And I, I really can see myself if I was playing in person, just busting it out and being like, here are like the different options. Like the the specificity doesn't matter that much because uh, you know of the nature of the thing. But I, I don't know. I really liked it this time for some reason. A friend of mine noted how on the map for Sigil itself, there's a little detail under the Great Bazaar saying location sizes not to scale, which is also just kind of fun because that's of course accurate, but also kind of plays into the fact in my head that like how large is the city? Yes. <laughs> it's large <laughs> it's large enough for whatever you need it to be um i'm reminded of the dragon heist uh, adventure path um for under for water deep rather and like water deep is decently explained in that book but this is so much more deeply explained that i like you said you could toss out the third book that's the adventure and still probably come up with something with just what we have here um, I will say claythrophobia, the fear of being trapped. Google definitely thought I meant claustrophobia and kept trying to get me there. But uh, similar, right? Fear of small spaces, fear of being trapped. 
mm-hmm. it appears to be uh, what Claythrophobia is, of course, the city of Sigil, also called the Cage. So that's why that is there. That's the joke. Sorry, I ruined mm-hmm. it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, let's see here. I'm trying to see if there is a. Uh, there's any other funny encounters I was able to find here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the cranium rats. The cranium rats are great. Um, <laughs> just, just, they have a special call out in a few different places. Just like, okay, they're a big thing. I'm assuming that they're pretty prevalent in Planescape Torment as well. Yeah, there's the famous, uh, pla- it's like a you know colony of rats called uh, Us is the name of they I think they they say by name um the the t- the character so mm-hmm. uh yeah it's del- del- deliberate video game reference um and then the adventure uh you can run into some so that's a very funny thing we're going to get to but uh yep mm-hmm. that that's a f- first of many video game shout outs we're going <laughs> to talk about plenty um one very nuanced quibble here is that um uh, they get to a section about one of the is it, are they called Davises or Dabases I forget what they um, there's one named Fell in the Hive Ward who does magical tattoos. And at the end of that little bit there, it says, at the DM discretion, Fell can reproduce any magic tattoos detailed in Tasha's Cauldron of everything. I'm like, it would have been nice just to have like one or two example tattoos in the book that might have been just in- unique to the area or otherwise. I don't know. It's weird to have like, here's a reference to a different product you have to buy that's not the DMG to know what these magical tattoos are. I was a little disappointed with that. Oh, yeah, I just looked it up. Uh, Many is one is the collective mind of thousands of cranium rats, Mm. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so maybe this is a different one. I'm trying to remember. I definitely remember. Maybe it's Baldur's Gate. Was there a character named us or we in Baldur's Gate? Oh, my God. I have no too much Dungeons and Dragons shit. Well, there there is. Well, you got to remember, there's the intellect devourer in three that's called us. But that's a different one, I think, that you're thinking of. Oh my god, okay. Yeah, so they they get silly with <laughs> character right. names. I was now, thinking I'll, of us. I, the reason why I like the Grease Pit so much is because the names of the vendors, <laughs> Bog Standard, you know, by run by Bollywogs, Humongous Fungus, Make It Snappy, Slim Pickens, um, uh, Sugar and Spice, and The Vine. It gets The Vine is hilarious because it has Mustaville Gardenals that offer... Um, magical teas and throat scratching razor vine wraps. I'm like, who is the mark target demographic for throat scratching razor vine wraps? I don't know. <laughs> some nasty people out there. They are some. There are some nasty people out there for sure. Um, but yeah, like I'm just keep I'm just rolling through these other ones, uh, because then once you get to the ladies ward, um, it's the elegant district. Uh, there's. <laughs> I remember one of the encounters is that a Doom Guard rot blade just like looks all shady, opens up their overcoat and has a slew of finely crafted weapons. So you got like, what you buying, stranger? Kind of moment in Ladies Ward. Very good. Um, and like I said, it just it just keeps going. Like I was shocked at just because I'm I have the web version. I was just like shocked like how long it just keeps going and going. It feels almost overwhelming i'm pretty sure it's different obviously in book form how many pages is chapter two honestly in that book <laughs> uh yeah i don't know the top of my head this book is about 100 pages each of them are uh mm-hmm. so it's like a good you know 30 40 pages right it's like half the book um, yeah, this yeah, it much. bears a striking resemblance to the notes i do for dice funk where just our lo- locations and characters and then like everything else is just like figure it out you know mm-hmm 
So uh, it, it appeals to me. Uh, I should say I, I like a lot of the art in this book. I've been disappointed in some recent um, D&D books, which recycle art from Magic the Gathering. There was the the dragon book in particular, I felt was like almost all magic art. And then there yeah, was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That giant uh, book, which had AI art in it. So, right. That, uh, yeah. That one case there. I will say that um, speaking about the ladies who are in the art, uh, one of my details I just love is just this. Uh, there's a there's a picture of like a demon going up to the high courts just with a, <laughs> with a little briefcase there. And it's just like that's the sort of energy I look at. I'm like, OK, that's what this is all about. Right. Because like you said, this is behind the scenes. These why would this obviously like demonic character be just chatting casually with what looks to be either a human or a dwarf or something at a courthouse. Like, well, this is just what they do here. This is how things are. So, uh, yeah, I, I love that vibe as well. I would say page 57, there is a mention of the Revolutionary League. It says they were once a popular faction that fell away to disorganization. First of all, anarchists blown the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Uh, <laughs> so, Sophie, and, Sophie and Leon mad as hell. And <laughs> Shep, I like, all right, because I was going to talk about this later on, but we're, since we're here in Under Sigil, the other two factions listed here are the Undivided, the Deniers, which is basically holy creatures native of the sigil. They believe those who pass through planar portals are destroyed and replaced with clones. That's and a Star course, Trek joke. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. The the and then lastly, the coterie of cakes, the cakers, the destitute band of rosy cheeked bullies who assert their multiverse that the multiverse is a great multi layered cake and that baked goods are its fundamental unit of trade. I mean, that's just uh, that's just season seven in that first part right there, right? Is that how it works? Just uh, how uh, yeah, I mean. I, when, when the cakers come up in the adventure, I was going to talk about this, but for here, I will say this whole thing. Uh, first of all, it's just the silliness of it smacks of dice funk. Just like yeah. there's a whole political party that thinks the world is a cake. But uh, also it kind of is literally <laughs> true about our universe. Um, I, I kind of walked ass backwards into that one. So uh, that that's very funny. Uh, do, 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 do. Yes. Okay. So is an under sigil. Two cranium rat squeakers gnaw on the bones of a skeleton, which reaches out towards the characters for help. I just love the fact that there's just a skeleton being accosted by rats and just like reaching out silently asking for help from you. Just like great. Yeah, I, we're gonna need to move on to the adventure soon because I can feel us both wanting to talk about it. But yeah, the the, the rat who uh, ate all the food and then just says, "Do what you must." I've already won, which is a, <laughs> the, a, me a meme that is like twenty years old of a rat in a box, or it's not even a rat; it was like some kind of squirrel in a box yep. of donuts with uh, its big tum big tummy. Big tummy, yeah. I'll, I'll just I'll gloss with the rest of the stuff real quick so we don't spend too much time here. But yeah, there's encounters and stuff for the lower ward. Great stuff in there as well. Um, mainly a goblin mage that is trying to build a golem and asks for 200 pounds of iron. Great. And then, to kind of add further point to what I said earlier, the back end of this chapter is about adventures in Sigil, adventure hooks and stuff like that. And probably the funniest thing is at the very end of this chapter on the encounter in Sigil's taper, table, entry 100 is, if you roll the random encounter roll of 100, the Lady of Pain shows up. Just... Yeah, great. Um, not ideal. <clears throat> not ideal. Yeah, she doesn't figure that much into the story. I guess well, that's literally the last thing we're going to talk about. But um, yeah, the La Lady of Pain is used somewhat judiciously because, like, what interactions can you have with her? You know, but right, you gotta you gotta do something. <laughs> mm -hmm. But once we get past that, then the last third, the last 
basically half of this first book is the Outlands and going to just as much detail about the Outlands as it does through Sigil, basically. Yeah, I was very surprised. I assumed that I was buying kind of a sigil uh, set of books that, you know, that's the iconic location. I never Mm -hmm. gave that much thought to the Outlands because, you know, their their identity is kind of like the neutral plane and neutral Mm -hmm. usually means boring. So, you know, whatever. I don't know if we spent any time in the Outlands in season six, but Mm -hmm. reading this book and then the adventure, I'm like, oh, if we're going back to Planescape, I think we're just going to do an Outlands campaign because uh, there's there's a lot going on here and this really fleshed it out and like brought it to life in a way I've never thought about, even though I've read, I think every Planescape book, (laughs) like this is the first time I felt like invigorated by this concept. Yeah. So there are a bunch of gate towns around um, the edge of the outlets. I forget how many total gate towns are there. Oh shoot. 16. Yeah. And for for all 16 um, in this section here, you have information about like regional effects, what type of people or you know entities are in the area, some notable figures, the gate itself that goes from that gate town to its associated outer, outer plane, noteworthy sites, and then just a set of four different adventure hooks for that particular gate town. And like I said, it's like it's shockingly robust to the point where, like you said, I could imagine just doing entire campaigns in just the outlands just because it allows for that fun interaction with how the outer planes influence it and there's pushback and all the different locations being wildly different aesthetically and and tone wise um yeah another thing is the gate towns are more like street level so like when i was doing season six i was like well we're gonna go to like literal actual hell in heaven you know like the super devil and super angels and stuff so we need to be a really high level party and it's like uh you know sigil will be like the kind of safe space between taking portals to like uh the super ultra mega uh, hyper leveled places but you don't have to do it that way like if we were doing it again we could do a lower level outlands campaign and if we want some hell flavor we go to the the gate town of ribcage which is like right. where the portal to hell is but we don't need to actually go to hell so it's yeah. a it's a great um you know option to play a lower stakes or lower level campaign but still get a lot of the flavor that you know that w- what i was doing before which was just like uh adrenaline needle to the heart <laughs> we are only going to the most you know intense yeah. uh corners but there's like a there's a cool mint version (laughs) of each of the places yeah i will say is there any particular gate town that you want to discuss because like it'd be difficult to go over all of them obviously but was there any fun things that jumped out at you when looking through them I mean, we'll, I think we're going to get into them a little bit more with the adventure because the part of the like the whole center of the campaign is just like you need to visit seven gate towns, do them in any order. So we'll get there. The, the thing that jumped out to me as kind of someone who's read a lot about these things before, like I don't think any of these uh, gate towns are new, um, but uh, in the description of Faunal, Faunel, the uh, Beastlands gate town, it says that a bunch of it has slipped into the Beastlands. I don't mm-hmm. know if this is a reference to a storyline I don't remember or if they're just re- reminding you that that can happen because in the video game Planescape Torment, I believe, uh, I think it was Cursed, the the, yes. the Tartarus uh, town, like slid into another plane because of, you know, the, the people there's 
you know, belief. You know, that's the way this works. Is if enough people believe something is true, it becomes true. This will be mm. important later. Um, <laughs> I actually found that was a, a plot point. Some people, some listeners on our show, had some problems with because it's it is kind of conceptual. But like the whole uh, climax of Purgatory hinges on like whoever believes the you know the universe will be a certain way will just literally make that true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's I, I was curious if you knew anything if you had any memories of uh you know uh faunel being previously uh absorbed I, I, I don't have any just a... yeah i don't have any particular memories of that per se i will say this about faunel that one of the arts they have in there it just sent me like for for day for for days and by days i mean like a several minutes the uh the null poacher image they have just like Mick Mangehide with his <laughs> with his hat, little poacher hat. I'm just like that is just wild stuff. It's just I, I do think it's kind of funny because we have this season where I'm playing uh, playing as an Ardling, and there was a period of time like when they were developing one D and D that the Ardlings were these entities that were might have originated from the Beastlands in some way. Ardlings don't exist in here. Gardenals are like the 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 premier. Uh, anthro animal sort of race they have uh placed around here and um but yeah like i don't have any particular memories about like faunal's relationship with the beastlands and stuff i just think it i think it was it might have been important for the design of this book and i think it makes the most sense with faunal to have at least one gate town that is influenced by its outer plane just to kind of show what that is like and also, I think it allows for the adventure hooks they have in there where you have to like almost deal with the dispute between the three different Gardinals kind of vying for leadership in the community and stuff like that. Um, so I thought like there, there's some fun details in Fondle in particular that I thought were, were neat. Um, uh, most of the most of the Fondle adventures wrote down a note as Fern Gully Hooks was my uh, note there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also like the, the Modron train in Automata, which is yeah. Uh, oh, yes, I does it have a little I, mustache. Yes, yes, I actually have a picture of that too of like the train face there is what I put down there. <laughs> I just it's just the other thing I've known for Modrons are just like they have these like succulent big lips in a lot of the art depictions, which is just <laughs> almost unnerving but very funny. Um, it makes me that much angrier that there's no player Modron option just because I just would love to have someone just be that. But yeah, you yeah. would have to bend yourself into a pretzel to like explain why they have their free will. Although Planescape Torment does have a Modron companion. Do you know who voices uh, that character? No. It's uh, Homer Simpson. Da- oh, Dan Castellaneta. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, that um, is the the voice of the Modron companion. All the notes I have for oh notes for this have for this area. Uh, when, when I went to Plague Mort, um, I misread the name, uh, misread the description of the pit as a stinky ink hole rather than an inky stink hole. So that just stuck in my head <laughs> from now on. It's yeah. an ink hole. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so the, 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 basically the rest of this book is about these uh, 16 gate towns that are in the neutral plane, but each uh, harbor a portal to the actual uh, outer planes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I actually want to kind of play my cards close to the chest because I don't know if slash when we'll be back. But if we will, if we do a Planescape uh, season again, it, I think it will be like the players create their own faction and then go to the gate towns trying to, you know, uh, to help people to get other people on board, like basically do, mm. you know, campaigning or something like, mm-hmm. I don't know that exactly. Cause it depends on what the players want to do, but like, that is the, one of the foremost ideas. And I would probably just cannibalize a lot of these <laughs> little details and hooks I, because they're I, great. 
for the for readers coming in, I'll say one big thing here. It's that like on the one hand, a player could definitely have fun reading through this to get ideas of where their characters come from. But obviously, GMs should be careful about letting players read too much because they might spoil themselves about some of the inner workings of how some of these gate towns work. And I think part of the fun of doing an Outlands campaign is just sort of not knowing entirely what each town is and then kind of discovering that as you go. Um, I will point out one of my other favorite details here is that in uh, Sylvania, what <laughs> there's this character that's described as King uh, Urin III, who is like this like little, I think it's a pixie, I think is what they are. Uh, let me double check here. But anyways, one of the adventures, one of the adventure hooks in there is that a blink dog eats him and the kingdom descends to chaos while people are expected to try to find the next monarch. I'm like, okay, the king is dinner. Long live the king. Move on. Just yeah. Lots of stuff in there. Do you want to move uh, on to the adventure? Because I feel like we, we were playing footsies with it the whole time because we're both so excited to talk about it. Oh, yeah. So like, yeah, let's, let's just go. We got turned up fortune's wheel to look at then. Yeah. Uh, cover uh, is the the head of an Arcanaloth, which is a fox uh, a fiend. Uh, she's smirking very, uh, you know, uh, mischievously. And behind her is a big skull, the Mimir we've been talking about. And at the bottom are a bunch of Modron. This is clearly a reference to the Great Modron March, another mm-hmm. iconic planescape uh, adventure. I think, I don't know, if you're trying to think of what are the most iconic ones, I always think Faction War is the most, but actually I bet Mo- the Great Modron March has probably been referenced much more. <laughs> I think, mm-hmm. it, like, anytime a Modron comes up, uh, the writer will always mention the Great Modron March. It's like the most uh, iconic thing they've ever done, so uh, maybe I'm underselling that. I'll read the disclaimer for the book here. <clears throat> Fortune's Wheel welcomes guests in currencies from all planes, realities, and timelines. The house takes no responsibilities for any harm, financial, physical, existential, or otherwise endured during games of chance, in interactions with guests or house security, or by running afoul of the proprietor, gamble responsibly. Yeah, so Fortune's Wheel is a casino. That's that's the context of that uh, disclaimer. And, of course, that's got to remind us both of Season 4 when we did go to a casino. Um, mm-hmm. And, actually, there was also a one-shot we did with uh, James Stephanie Serling, which is in a kind of casino. So I, I, I was getting a lot of echoes of our shenanigans here. But uh, this isn't a fully gambling-based adventure, but it's, like, you know, yeah. a, a, an important location. But we'll, we'll talk about that. But So this is a confluence of a lot of um, Dice Funk stuff and... Mm-hmm. No more is that true than chapter one, how this uh, opens, which yep. is all your characters are dead. Yep. <laughs> this, I mean, this is obviously a reference to Planescape Torment. You win the nameless one, your player character wakes up in the mortuary. Um, but I also did this, that, you know, beginning, who am I to throw stones at uh, homages, right? Because it's literally how I opened Purgatory is all the characters uh, had just died. Uh, I didn't set them in the mortuary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was too on the nose. Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's too coast. simple. This is this is beneath my audience here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but yeah, later Nifix does go back to the mortuary to see her body. It's so we, I did fit that location in, but it's it is uh, you know the famous opening of that game, and you are immediately uh, greeted by Mort. Uh, or Morte? I don't remember if that, that is ever said out loud in that game, but uh, the floating talking skull, I believe this is implied to take place just before the nameless one wakes up because the way your interaction with uh, Mort ends is he says, uh, you go out without me, I'm waiting for someone. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, yeah. Like, if the characters know. ask more to accompany them, the skull declines, mentioning that he's waiting for someone else. He doesn't elaborate further, so that that, that would track in that respect. Yes. Yeah, I, it would be. I don't know what else they could be implying because you know, <laughs> when when he leaves with the nameless one, he goes some other places. I don't think and ever ends up back at the mortuary. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's like a little Easter egg, a little throwaway if you get the reference, I guess. But I thought this. I thought he was going to be a much bigger part of it. Like I thought, mm-hmm. like you know, this is an iconic character. He'll follow you around and be your little exposition fairy or something. But like, nope. That this is the only part of the adventure he is included in. He still has a stat block though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what are you going to do? You're going to throw down on more? What, what, <laughs> he's challenge rating one quarter. <laughs> That's so rude. Such a mean thing to do. Um, um, but yeah, the first dungeon you find yourself in is the opening level of Plant State Torment. You got to get out of the mortuary and there's fucking skeletons and zombies and shit. And they're going to bonk you on the head. Um, uh, there's This is, introduces a major mechanic here. I don't know if you want to talk about that first, or is there, is there any other details of this opening you want to get into? I, I mean, I, I note I, that... This is ahead. one of those things where I find it, where there is this... I think we could get to, like, the twist that gets revealed during this, because the book explicitly says if you get to the, the crematorium, it's likely the characters are going to die in here, and... And that that leads to the main like gimmick of the campaign and how it works, which is the glitch characters. Um, yeah, I was gonna say that this this uh, campaign explicitly opens with all your characters having amnesia, which is normally uh, a huge negative in my book. I try not to be uh, you know t- too much of a dick about it, but like that that feels amateurish to me. This is the rare case where I think it pays off. Like oh, I, I'm not inflexible here, but uh, yeah. I, I started with a, f- a frown in my face, and then as I read, it got t- my frown got turned upside down. So. <laughs> Tropes are not necessarily good or bad. They're just tools. Uh, but yeah, you wake up with you and your your party in the mortuary. You don't remember who you are. Um, and then you start wandering around. And like you said, there's a there's a crematorium. You can walk into a big oven with a kind of silly <laughs> a zombie who has his hand on the lever. This is and such we, a silly idea. <laughs> pulled, the furnace lever clauses the torches set into the walls to rupture gouts of flame. Creatures in the and the crematorium must make a DC 18 for level three characters. Dex saving throw taking 44 fire damage on a failed save or half as much on a su- successful one. 8d10 damage. Mm-mm-mm. Delicious. Yeah, you probably just get incinerated, which, I mean, it's kind of a Looney Tunes thing. I think it's funny. I, I, we're going to need to keep note of the player character levels. I think it's very important that they start yeah. at level three here. Uh, we'll, we'll note a little bit about this as it goes. But yeah, so at least one of your party members are probably going to get torched. And if they don't know uh, the gimmick of this adventure, I, that'll probably be a fun, shocking moment mm-hmm. uh, because then, uh, you know, they'll continue looking through the mortuary and then run into that guy who just got incinerated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. Uh, so tell us about glitch characters. Yeah. So part of the premise of this whole thing is this idea of a multiversal glitch and how it manifests in the player characters is that when characters are when the characters exist in three incarnations and these incarnations are meant to be the same character, but in three different forms. These forms can vary in terms of race, class other details there's usually one uh distinctive feature or item that's shared amongst all of them they do a great job with the art showing off a character in wizard paladin and druid incarnations all sharing the same uh sun motif between them and such and the only and i like the idea i think part of the fun about it too is that it allows for some extra lighthearted antics where you as a gym could just 
kill a character at the end of a session as a punchline and then next session open up with them just in another incarnation continuing like nothing happened i think that's very funny and very fun it also uh, suggests uh, like solving puzzles by, for example, throwing yourself into some gears to stop them. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like that's what I find really fun about it. There, like, it's, it's the the tricky part is how do you actually get the incarnations to be designed in the first place? The two prompts they they offer here is you basically have it so that when the character dies for the first time, everyone else at the table helps design another incarnation with them on the spot. And then the other option is to just have characters design the incarnations uh, uh, going in there. I'm kind of curious about what would be the most interesting way to kind of have that twist feel like a twist for the players coming in. But, um, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, You really got to tailor it to your play group, right? Because I feel like if I was playing with you or Dan or someone where I would like, you know, first of all, you probably both would know about the adventure already because you're nerds. But if you didn't, I would try to spring it on you and then make you do a character sheet at the table because you can do it pretty quickly because you're very knowledgeable. But if it was like newbies or something for whom creating a character sheet is like a week long stressful event, um, you know, that Mm -hmm. maybe I would help you know, ahead of time prepare some kind of thing or try to make it less scary. Cause I, you know, <laughs> some people take their character dying very personally. Uh, so you gotta, you gotta I, know your group. If I was trying to be really, if I was trying to be really coy about it, I'd be like, Oh, if, look, let's just workshop a few ideas here. Okay. And then take these ideas that were not taken. Just like, Oh, here's your incarnations. You get to be all of your ideas. Congratulations. Yeah. So the, the, the big gimmick of this is that your characters, if they die, they just come back in a new uh, form. When this was announced, so like they had to put a press release saying, like, we have this Planescape product. It has this feature where you have, you know, these other uh, versions of your character. I think I was on uh, Spewpunk and I said to Quinn, I bet this is the incarnations of the Nameless One from Planescape Torment. I like, spoilers, it literally is. I, I you know, I, I'm not saying I'm the biggest brain person who's ever lived, but uh, it is so direct directly the thing from the video game um mm-hmm. i don't know if i'm disappointed or just like yeah obviously, like you know it would be weird if it wasn't that mm-hmm. uh but it is indeed uh, that thing from the video game so if you haven't played it you play a character who has amnesia he runs into different versions of himself so he is the nameless one and then there's the paranoid incarnation and the, the practical incarnation and then the the branching choices of the game mean you can do a couple different things you can fight them you can join with them etc cetera, etc cetera. that is like the crux of that and uh uh, this this adventure gives you some choices. Uh, it's less involved because the, the game has no way of knowing what your character is like. You know what I'm saying? Right. It can't uh, anticipate that. But at, at the end, when you do encounter your incarnations, you get a kind of couple choices how to handle that. But for most of the adventure, it doesn't matter. It just you can just throw yourself into shit. Is the idea, yeah. and then they can have things be more lethal, which I think is fun. I think another sidebar I really like, honestly, there's this one thing towards the end of the introduction that says don't rush eternity. And it kind of makes it very clear that the the scale of time is as such that you don't need to worry about rushing through plot points. If characters get really interested in just like some part of Sigil or some gate town, you could spend a month in there and it's not a problem. Right. And I think that's kind of neat because. Uh, whereas with like the Spelljammer adventure, it feels more like you're being kind of rushed and railroaded through it because it's meant to be more like a, a Flash Gordon serial adventure that always moves forward with each session. And this being explicitly not that, I thought was also a nice touch. 
from a design standpoint. Yeah, I, I like that aside as well because it says something like uh, uh, time doesn't pass the same for each person, which has led me to like, what if you have tea with someone and at the end of it, they're 10 years older than you all of a sudden? <laughs> like, it's, it's like you're speaking my language in terms of like how to interpret that inaction there and just sort of like casually have causality problems, but just nobody has an issue with it because there's a they just go with it. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that is interesting because uh, urgency can be a very powerful spice in a campaign in any storytelling, you know, mm-hmm. tabletop or otherwise. And I, I like to use urgency as as a tool, but also letting people kind of explore at their own rate also has its uh, advantages. So I think that's really interesting. And using the flexible nature of time and Planescape to kind of facilitate that is, is very clever. So I liked that aside as mm-hmm. well. Um, but I think we're done with the mortuary after, after, uh, yep. you, you escape, you know, I don't think you ever go back. You never see more again, but, uh, you emerge into the city and then there's kind of a, a, a free roam. <laughs> there's an open world section, which eventually gets interrupted by, uh, the cops. Do, is there anything you want to talk about before we get to the popo? Oh, the, 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 the harmonium officers and such. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I mean, again, what I like about it is again, it just opens things up, lets people explore, you know, um, you have like the the basic sigil encounters. I think one of the funnier bits in there is the three arguments one. We have the three different factions arguing, and it gives you three options where to go in there. I'm just like that. I think that's one of those encounters that kind of makes sense to have the players go through as a way to introduce the philosophies angle of stuff, introduce the f- factions that might tie to the different gate towns, kind of a loose way, and then even present the whole like discussing the philosophy stuff before the popo show up and uh <laughs> and drag you off yeah it's interesting because th- this is not a faction-based adventure like you don't need to engage with any of the uh, p- politics going on in the city you're going to leave the city for the majority of the adventure which is fine yeah it, it's it's Final Fantasy VII in that respect, right? You're in, you're in, <laughs> you're in the city in the opening, and then you just go out to the world for a while. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting because I, I wonder if they, from a you know behind the scenes perspective, they're like, oh, this is going to be a lot. People are going to feel overwhelmed having to talk about existentialism and stuff. But we do have to, we have to include it. It's part of it. So yeah, mm-hmm. you, once you leave, you can encounter some uh, people arguing uh, politics in the street. You can agree with some of them or none of them, <laughs> and then leave. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't really matter, matter. But um, yeah, I can see why they did that, where you, you get some of the iconic flavor, and then they're going to take you. Uh, to some other places. So uh, w- after that, there's also um, what was the other uh, encounter? The Society of Sensation person can come up. Yes, to you? This, the right, the sensory, uh, the Society of Sensation muse, and you have the sensory stone stuff there. So I think like those are the two main encounters. They have like detailed out outside of just general exploration, and it's just like let the players go, and then once you're ready to continue the adventures. Pull out the cop card, you know, just <laughs> yeah. And basically, the book says like, uh, once the there's a lull and your players having fun, just like have some fucking jackboots show up. Um, <laughs> Open up the police! They kick down the door while you're just vibing in the sensory area. Yeah, the, 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 the knock, knock, knock. FBI <laughs> kicks the door. FBI. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you start getting away, taken away by the uh, Harmonium, who are like the the fucking Stasi of Sigil. Uh, but before you are taken to anywhere of consequence, one of the officers reveals themselves as a, a you know glamoured uh, spy who frees you. This is an interesting kind of um, uh, thing you could expand on, right? 
right? The way this is written is like you get arrested, but before you're, uh, you know, uh, processed anywhere, you escape and then it never really comes back up. Like you just go on a different adventure. Um, but you could, for whatever reason, have a whole thing where you get taken to a jail cell and, you know, have to play, plan your escape or go to court or whatever. Because the thing you're in trouble for technically is being a glitch <laughs> which mm -hmm. i guess is a crime um but then yeah there mm -hmm. aren't any like, that's not a storyline that's going to keep going but i i could see myself right. expanding on it if i because you know your player you can never say how your players are going to interact but if i said like yo here's the key to your handcuffs uh, i could definitely see dan being like oh this is a this is a trick you know <laughs> this is, they're trying to get me to uh uh you know, I, I want to stand trial I'll, I will argue my way out of this situation yeah, exactly and then it's like well fuck i guess you're going to jail then <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and, and I could also I could picture the the agent like like disguising it as a fellow prisoner and then proposing a jailbreak and then it doesn't work. Then have to impose as like the judge, and the judge decides to let them off. Like actually, I think this is a mistrial. We need to have another go at it. It's like damn it, Dan. Yeah, that, that that's the kind of shenanigans that happen when uh, your players uh, come up with ideas. But uh, this this spy who once again doesn't, doesn't seem like that major of a character. They actually have a cool gimmick where they have a bunch of different identities that don't know each other, uh, which I think is pretty mm -hmm. cool. But they just tell you that like, oh hey, my boss wants to talk to you. Come with me, and then you have to go through the under sigil, which is like you know the slums mm -hmm. or whatever, to get to the iconic. Uh, casino that we discussed at the beginning. We're about to get to the, to the actual meat of this thing, but uh, on the way there, you run into the Cakers, which is this f fucking uh, comedy gang. This is like the Warriors, that cl that classic film where all the gangs have like themes. <laughs> this is the the people who think the universe is a cake. This whole thing is uh, so silly. I, I, I there's this, there's a powerful line that one of the paragraphs just opens with the line: "The Cakers have eaten the cursed cake." 100 percent no notes that's that's a like that's how you open a paragraph <laughs> yeah this whole thing i've already said this this is such a dice funk ass detour where it's just like all these people are obsessed with cake and if you if you they offer you cake if you refuse they attack you for the insult but if you eat the cake it's cursed and you die in 1d4 hours it, <laughs> it's not even fucking around uh it's it, like, like it's there's no save just like whatever i i, I also like the unnecessary detail that the cakers have two stale baguettes in their inventory if you loot the corpses <laughs> and just like perfect yeah uh this thing this whole thing is so silly it, it's like I, I like how it's so frightening but so stupid i also note that the uh, the stuffed rat mentioned earlier there's the the we us thing that goes on in there that you're talking about that references stuff there yeah the rat um, uses the pronoun we and us when referring to itself uh which yeah i think is a reference to that that uh, many is one character but it says the rodent meets your gaze you hear a low voice in your mind do what you must it says we have already won <laughs> so stupid we ate the whole thing <laughs> we ate the whole plate um this ridiculous. <laughs> the whole plate. But yeah, the the cake the cake is cursed. These people are ridiculous. But also in our universe, in our dice funk universe, kind of right about the layers of reality, which is very funny. This is all just kind of a comedy aside before you get to the casino. Is there anything you want to add about the fucking cakers? When I first read this, I was like, this might be a little too silly. Like I'm kind of rolling my eyes, but it's all it's honestly grown on me in the last 24 hours. <laughs> oh, I love I love the cakers. Uh, every bit of it. The art's great. Um, 
just uh, like what I like about it is that it's there's lots of things in this book that are designed to make you kill all of your characters at some point pretty early on. Yeah. Um, and just to force them to kind of glitch around and stuff like that. And I like that because you could play this in many different tones and such. You could go more Dark Souls with the vibe or you can go like, <laughs> yeah, very just matter of fact about it and more comedic. And it all can work depending on the vibe you want to go with. So I think that's all very fun. But yeah, let's just go. Let's go. Let's go spin fortune's wheel, shall we? Yeah, I was going to say that uh, the dying in 1D four hours is like with no save is such an intense punishment that, you know, it wouldn't fit in anything but this glitch um campaign so but it works perfectly mm-hmm. here uh so yeah I, I i like the invitation that allows for just like be just just be a sierra game okay just a character does something wrong kill them outright who cares right but but also but get eek but like you could be as gruesome or as silly love it like again no notes it's a very fun thing to play around in all right, so we reach Fortune's Wheel, the casino. There's a long introduction of its, uh, you know, ambiance and some minor characters milling around. This is the point where that uh, Shatter Kai spy we spoke of earlier kind of leaves. I don't know if it's. I think if there's one mention at the end that you can like look for if you want, but uh, that that is uh, something to note there. And then um, there's there's a lot of little details like there's a dragon here who has a bunch of debt that I thought was fun. Uh, there's you know the the various games you can play. Uh, they've really they. They flesh this thing out because you will be back here actually near the end of the adventure. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is this is a much more complex uh, kind of setting than when we did the one shot in the casino or when we went there in uh, Valentine. Uh, there's one part I definitely want to talk about, but before we get there, is there anything you want to add before we talk about Vecna? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, not not that extensively. I, one of the things I found particularly funny as a detail about Fortune's Wheel, I think this is in the first book is like one of the encounters you could have is like a cheery drider comes up and like gives you a pamphlet about Lulf and just like mm-hmm. like 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 the phrase cheery drider made me think of what was it Gwendolyn from season two mm-hmm. the the drider that I just murdered with Elias in two rounds just yeah I mean, a lot of this is like playing off of Vegas stereotypes. So, like the evangelicals were like, you know, turn away from sin and the thing we've referenced before. And, you know, in Vegas, there is the uh, Elvis impersonators. Uh, it's like a whole thing. Here, there are <laughs> they're fucking Vecna impersonators. Vecna impersonators. The, the I'm just like yeah. The classic lich uh, villain from early D and D, and there's a great illustration of him doing some kind of fucking dance move. Uh, this is so silly. So, so my idea for this is that I wanted, we'll just run with it and just have Vecna sightings, just like the different versions of Vecna. It's like, oh man, I saw Vecna eating like a, a cheeseburger around the corner. It's like, yeah. Uh, so the way this is the structure just kind of there's like a couple hours that you can do and there's some timed events uh, with the third timed event being the appearance of the character on the cover of the book Shemsheshka Shemeshka 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 Fuck Shemeshka me. I think is what yeah, <laughs> pronunciation strikes again uh, but the first two timed events are are, are the uh, the doppelgangers who are the Vecna impersonators pickpocketing people and then there's the dragon who has run up this tab that you can intervene with I found those both really good because you know 
know, some other stuff is like, oh, you can play the slots or you can roll to play cards or whatever. That's fine. That's what we did on, on the show. Uh, but the, these are very personality filled. I like also there's the, uh, the Nothics, which are those creatures, uh, uh, from the monster manual, very underused. That man, the the security room, I thought was very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to deal with uh, you know casino security in season four, and it's a hard thing to do because so many magics exist that it's like theoretically anything you try to do should be able to be you know witnessed or stopped by security. But you also want the players to have space to be fun. It's hard to mm-hmm. kind of role play in that space, so. Uh, some some guidance there is good for me. I like I like that detail. But there's there's a lot of that stuff. Just like oh, there's this weird guy walking around. What's up here? What kind of uh, people are the guards? Oh, Mesoloths. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, stuff like yeah. That. Why why does that slot machine have eyes and a big old smile? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Was he created like that? What's up with that? Um, yeah, what, what's what's what, what's it that guy? Uh, like it, it's a. Well, like you said there's plenty of stuff. I also like the timed events concept because again, it's oh, it's a it's a clever idea to have like a little play area, but not get people to get too lost in it for the time being. And like yeah, it's just it's I think it's a well designed area for both openness and also proper railroading to get to Shemeshka and her dealings with things. Yep. So once you've uh, had three hours in the casino, Shemeshka arrives. This is uh, like the uh, you know most important NPC really of the campaign. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. the, the way she's introduced is kind of intimidating for a DM because it's like, oh, she has a uh, you know the surface level of like calm and but like uh, powerful charisma, but then like an undertone of like sinisterness. And it's like, bitch, who do you think I might? My fucking Tom Cruise over here. You want me to do what kind of acting do you want me to do? Uh, <laughs> yeah. In conversation, she's completely and cordial, exuding confidence and sophistication without appearing pretentious or insincere. I'm like, this is just a fucking prompt for uh, Brendan Lee Mulligan on make some noise, you know, just it's it's all it's a lot to give a DM to just <laughs> suddenly be like, OK, here's a graduate level of fucking acting uh, seminar or whatever. But it is important because uh, her whole thing is the kind of crux of the adventure. Right. So uh, she tells you that she can help you solve the glitching problem. You know, you're missing memories, which are presumably the driving force of your characters because they don't have a backstory they're aware of. And she says, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll fix all your shit. Just go find this Modron. Uh, the audience probably mm-hmm. knows Modron. They're the little robots. The one that she's looking for is called R04M, which looks like the word Rome if, when it's written out. It's mm-hmm. fun. Um, and so the, basically your quest is to find Rome. Uh, but this begins like a, a nesting series of quests that we're going to get into. But it's like, okay, w- what are we doing here? What is the premise of this campaign? Well, we got to get our memories back. Why do we have to get our memories back? Because we're, we're glitching. Why are we glitching? We don't know. So what, what do we got to do? We got to help this lady. Why do we got to help this lady? She needs a robot. It's like this quest within a quest within a quest within a quest. Um, mm-hmm. That kind of design can be frustrating for players. I've definitely found situations where the players will you know, look at each other and be like, why are we doing this? <laughs> How does this benefit me? Uh, so I, I usually try to do more direct uh, like scripting, I guess you would call it. Like, you know, you want A, so go get A, rather than you want A, so get B, so you can get C, so you can get A, because that gets, right. gets confusing. I think this mostly works because of something we're about to get to. But um, I will say, like, when I first realized, like, I was getting a quest about a quest about a quest, I was I was a little hesitant. I was like, uh, this you know, this can get out of hand quickly. But uh, anything about Shemshaska from you before we go looking for this robot? No, I mean like the 
let me go all the way back down to the bottom of this section here. Um, uh, I mean, it does it it. it it basically is, it does a good job of just sort of telling the GM, like, here's what's going on. Here's what matters. Like, if the players doubt the intentions in there, it's, you know, it, it's fine. It makes it clear that this is all like a distraction for things happening in the background. But like you said, it's like the players get dropped at the sigil and then the adventure needs an excuse to get them out of sigil. So I guess my thought here would be if the players rejected the offer, you would need to have some other way to get them to be compelled to leave in some capacity, and that can be a little rough. So I think, like I said, to make the players want to just go to the Outlands first in some way, I think would be a cleaner way to get there before we get to, well, that's what the next chapter is basically, right? The next part of the adventure. Yep, chapter four, Into the Outlands. I will say, uh, knowing the full plot of this uh, story now, it is interesting to me that Shemjaska is like, hey, go do the one thing that'll fuck me over. <laughs> she could have just said, <laughs> she could have sent you to do anything else. <laughs> Why? Yeah, actually, actually sent you out to do this thing is her undoing, which is funny, but I think it also kind of, it, it, it's like it's fine, but it's just like it's very funny that it's like it, it undoes undoes her. Yeah. So our arcanoloths are a kind of yugoloth. This is one of those things where you're about to get a bunch of uh, fucking vocab words for your homework. Uh, I, I my my experience is that uh, players love demons and they love devils. They love angels. That's all very clear. Modrons as well. But then there's some mm-hmm. stuff like yugoloths that they're they're like oh, that's too much. I don't want to learn that word. Uh, so mm-hmm. they're, they're they're used sparingly. They're they're the guards in the casino where Yugoloths and uh, Shemsheska is, but that that is kind of the end of the the Yugoloths. I don't think there are any. Are there any in the actual uh, the Planar Parade? The name of the monster manual. I'd have to look, but I don't think so. I I, I think the Planar Parade. I think the only like named specific NPC is uh, Shemeshka. I think in there. Um, everything else is just references to like just general races and stuff. But she's the only one that's called out. And then like the faction agents are close but not really like Shemeshka is the only like named person in there yeah all right so it's time to leave sigil uh, and go into the outlands the neutral plane where almost the whole rest of the adventure is going to take place we're going to return to the casino at the end but like uh i was you know not 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 unpleasantly surprised i was like oh we're really going somewhere else and uh mm-hmm. it's big it's a whole plane so we're gonna need a ride <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> what, what kind of vehicle do the players get like if you read a uh, you know descent into avernus that was like the uh, recent big adventure that led into Baldur's gate 3 uh there was a whole section about your fucking uh mad max hell car uh, what do they got for the, us this time uh a, a walking castle we're on our Baba Yaga shit. We Baba Yaga. Right. <laughs> yeah. Does it does it like, mention it, how you get into the walking castle? I'm trying to remember. I, <laughs> so so you you so basically so here's how it works. So you go into a nameless room in the Outlands. Uh, creatures can follow the tracks towards the forest. You know, uh, a person who succeeds at a check sees that there's basically you're following some weird tracks, and then that leads you to the walking castle, and then. Inside the castle, you get your big ride. You also get one of the main MacGuffins for the campaign, the Mosaic Mimir. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is what I thought Mort was going to be. You, you you, eventually get your Mort, but it's not Mort. It's a different guy. Yeah. And, like, the the thing about it is that this, this uh, particular 
uh, Mimir is like is the thing that you that's like the campaign is built around. Like that's the actual crust of the campaign is this Mimir, which will help you find Rome. But in order to do it, you you gotta finish it. You gotta finish its uh, Wikipedia entries. On, <laughs> you really do on, on on the seven different gate towns. Yeah, it's such a good uh, idea because you like you want to do a tour of the towns, but like what you know, what can what compel you to be so thorough? And it's like yeah, there's this there's this skull who needs all his data back. I don't know. It, it's a little MacGuffin-y, It's a little a little fetch questy, but it really worked for me because then it also gives you a framework to let the players choose the order of events, which is very fun. Right. That's what I like the most about it because chapters five through twelve in the book can be done basically in any order because it's just you're touring around and trying to figure out information, do things. And as you're doing it, like you're just advancing time forward slowly. I will say that among my favorite encounters in this entire section is in chapter 12. We'll get there. We'll get there. But like, I like the Mimir, uh, the Mimir uh, restoration tracker handout. Yes. I was going to say there's a little worksheet. Why is there a worksheet in this book? (laughs) There's a worksheet and and it it tilts his hand slightly by having an accurate slash skewed note there. Yeah, that's got to come up. Yeah, so you you have to take this skull you find in a walking castle. God, I love Planescape. On a tour of all these towns and then fill out this little questionnaire and you can do it wrong if you want. Um (laughs) <laughs> so that that's why it's gonna come up i was i was curious like how much is that actually gonna matter it kind of does um but yeah. as far as taking the castle there's some bad guys in there is there anything you want to talk about the bad guys you got to kill on the way to uh having your own walking castle i didn't have any particular notes because i was too enraptured by chapters 5 through 12 that i forgot <laughs> about the people you have to fuck up to get the castle <laughs> yeah they're, they're kind of just generic bad guys who want the castle for themselves and fair enough i would also want a walking castle but it is yeah, it's it's a pretty uh, standard, uh, you know, get 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 your own ship kind of thing. So I I don't hold that against them. But yeah, the mosaic Mimir you get says uh, I'm missing data for these uh, seven locations. Uh, and if you find if you restore this data, I for some reason will be able to tell you where Robe, the missing Mojan, is. So that's your quest. Thirty-four pages in, <laughs> you get your quest. Thirty-four pages in, yeah, 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 for sure. It's like, like ah, now, like, well, this is even more like Final Fantasy VII, right? You do all this stuff in the in fucking Midgar, then you leave it like, oh, now the actual game begins on disc two, you know? Yeah. So uh, at this point, like I said at the beginning, when I saw that there was like amnesia, I was like a little like, uh, and then I saw there was like nested quest within a quest within a quest. I was like, uh, you know, this hesitancy, some trepidation. And then we get to this big open world part and I could feel my heart grow three sizes because this is it's a very Absolutely. fun structure and it was very inspiring. Like literally, I don't even mean that like in a generic, like I think it's good. Like I was literally inspired yeah. to be like, oh, I want to do this. <laughs> I want to do something like this. No, no, like no, no, no. You, you, you and I alike, right? Because it basically is like, you know, how do you do a campaign like this and not make it like, because I'm reminded of the street chase section of Dragon's Heist, where you have all these locations throughout Waterdeep you're going through, but it's a rigid structure that depends on what season the campaign is in. It just didn't feel like you really like felt the city through that. Um, and this is not meant to be the same as that, but this it makes sense if you're going out with Outlands, let the players just kind of go about it as they want, you know? Yeah. And and uh so which of chapters five through 11 do you want to do, you want to do them in order? Is there one you want to tap on first or, you know? Yeah, I think it'd be easiest to do them in order. I think they're alphabetical. Um, they are. 
Each one has kind of a, a very simple quest on paper. So like, uh, let's just, for the example, the first one, you go to Automata, which is the gate town outside of the Plane of Law. Uh, Mechanicus, Mechanus is how, how many syllables can a word have? Um, and basically, <laughs> basically, the little quest you get there is like if you want to uh, bring your Mimir to the gate, that's what you have to do specifically is like sync <laughs> your skull with the gates that are in each town. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to help uh, the, 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 basically the cops, <laughs> you know, the, the people in charge because they're all law uh, perverts. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they love they're, they're, order. They're, they're super law pervert for sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, you need to find uh, an agent of chaos who's stolen a book. And you can kind of approach that in a number of ways. You can try, you know, track someone there. You can, uh, I'm trying to think of what other uh, uh, suggestions it gives you how to find the hideout. Um, there's just roles, you know, do a sneak, do a uh, some kind of knowledge check. And then you find the person. You can bring them in dead or alive. You can let them go. You can, you know, it kind of lets you. Uh, figure out how you want that and that's how you uh, get permission to sync with the gate and that's the the basic structure of all seven of these is like you need to get to the gate and then the kind of uh, world conspires to make you do a little quest first I think that actually yep. we're going to talk about uh, I think a fun uh, aversion or like a twist on that but that that's um, that's how it is what do you think about the specific one so I will say about the specific one is that it actually had a shard point episode wrapped up in it uh, effectively I had an idea for like a weird hyper bureaucratic like dealing with tedium thing for a sharp point episode and when you try to access the gate at automata uh, the way that it describes what it takes to actually access the gate is so funny in my head it's it takes 4d 12 hours of standing in line mm-hmm. then to to get then you got to f- fill a stack of forms <laughs> over the course of 1d 4 days it requires a check to do correctly <laughs> Yeah. So it's just like it, it's just like the idea of the, the the idea of the tedium, the bureaucracy of automata. It's just a great way of, of like expressing the mechanical rigid nature of it all. And just it's very fun. And then the fact that that's the reason why you get pulled into doing the quest. I think automata makes a lot of sense for the first place to go because you're dealing with a Modron and all these things. So I think it's incidental that alphabetically it comes up first, but it's a really good, I think, first step to getting the idea of the, the vibe of the campaign. Yeah. Because basically what you're doing is trying to find someone and either fight them or uh, talk to them, which are kind of the basic D&D actions. I found the page where it gives you the suggestions of how to find them. One is just search with a survival check, which uh, is a high DC because you're kind of just wandering around aimlessly. And the other one is to stake out a place uh, where they're known to go and then uh, uh, stealthily follow someone. That's the lower uh, DC of 14. Um, or you could uh, try to, to, uh, uh, to intimidate them. That's a DC of 16. So basically, uh, there's a variety of different approaches with different difficulties. I think it's a really clever way to design it. Um, I really like all that. And the the character that you're looking for is just like, this place is too lawful. I want chaos, which is pretty basic. You know, there's not not like a a deep, rich vein there. Um, It does raise a little bit of questions. If you love chaos so much, why don't you go to the chaos place? But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you just want to be a contrarian. That kind of highlights for me... uh, uh, something that's different from just using Mechanus. So like in season six, if I wanted to have a Modron adventure, I would have said, you're, you know, you're in Sigil and you take a portal to Mechanus. Now you're in Mechanus. It's a world of, you know, gears and uh, clockwork mechanisms and robots and stuff. But by doing Automata, the city at the portal, it, it's still more grounded. There's, there's like a tavern, you know, there's people hanging out. Right. There's, 
uh, Githzerai, you know, the, the yellow uh, people. People actually probably know the Gith a lot more now because Baldur's Gate 3 was such a big hit. Yep. <laughs> uh, that used to but be, like, I feel, like more said, obscure. Yeah, but like you have, you have the ability to have the interaction between all these different things within the grounding of the flavor of Mechanus um, in Automata. And that's kind of like a running theme with the gate towns and how they feel. It's like, here's a way to get a flavor of this particular outer plane, but without having to go whole hog in there and be, be entirely different. Yeah. Uh, one one little uh, twist they throw in here is that the, the person's hideout is in a place called the inverse, which is on the bottom of the town and the gravity is reversed. So you walk along the ceiling, um, which in practice is just flavor. Like there's no, like if you're playing on graph paper, there's no like uh, on, you're not going to glue your miniatures to the bottom of it or something. That's, you know, it's just, it's just for your mind's eye, but I, that's a fun little detail. Um, and then, yeah, you, you find this person, you can get uh, a gold reward because uh, there's two big gambling sections in this adventure. I think money actually is more interesting than it usually is for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, tracking money in D&D is always kind of annoying. I, I, you know, the economy is very easy to game <laughs> if you know what you're doing. Uh, like power gamers are always just like, oh, you, all you have to do is do this, this, and this, and then you're so powerful or whatever. So uh, this is like a rare instance in which if my players like really wanted to take money seriously, I think the taking uh, this person alive gets you like twice the reward. And I think that's actually an interesting choice as opposed to mm-hmm. – just looting every dead body you see, <laughs> which is not that interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but that's I, that's pretty much all I can really say. Like you hit on a lot of the fun, like little details about the inverse, and also just like like I said, money actually feeling more meaningful because you can even use money to just buy where um, the the where where the, where the person you're hunting down where where they are, and it's just like cool. Like it, it just that's an option. You can pass three different skill t- different types of skill checks or just pay money, whatever you want. Yeah, it was very flexible. Uh, the next one alphabetically is Cursed, the gate town of Carceri, the prison plane where, where season three ends. Um, that was a you know a season about a prison inside of a prison. So you know themes are what they are. This is also my favorite twist on the uh, mission because every all seven gate towns you got to bring the skull to the gate. It's all you got to do. Uh, but there's always some fucking Yahoo who, who comes up to you and is like, oh, you want to sink with the <laughs> g- you want to sink with the gate first? Help me find my jelly beans or whatever. But this is this is the rare instance you can just walk out to the gate no one stops you <laughs> uh but there's a reason for that what's the, what's the twist here oh shoot oh, oh, oh okay i i don't have my homework for here um shit i think um oh gosh don't oh I'm sorry. I, I, I forgot what the <laughs> twist is here. I'm trying to look through it to pick it up here. Oh, so. you, you can walk right into town, sink with the gate, but then when you try to leave, <laughs> you cannot. You're in because you're in, right, right, right. Because <laughs> you're basically trapped in there. Yep, you're in prison. So this is actually uh, not a quest to the gate. It's a quest out of town. Um, right, you're right because that's kind of one of the things about just cursed in general. Right, is that leaving it is the hard part <laughs> yeah it's also it's also mentioned that the portal to carceri itself is a two-way portal but no one knows that everyone assumes it's one way uh which is very funny <laughs> to me because uh, everyone just has a uh, uh learned helplessness right from the conditions yeah. of prison uh but yeah but to your point though like it is a really kind of great twist to have at least one town where like the inverse is and so like if people come here very experienced they'll be like 
wait, what? And then yeah, have to deal with their consequences. I think especially if you did this one later, that would be very fun because I, you know, you got a little monotony could set in where you're like, all right, where's the fuckhole who wants us to sort their cabbages or whatever? <laughs> and, I, I walk up to the gate. Who's gonna stop me? Uh, yeah. no one. Yeah, what? what do you think of that, bitch? Um, and, and like, like, yeah, your 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 mirror is like, mm, that's some yummy information. Thanks, bro, Sifla. Let's move on to the next one. That's that's the voice. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the the actual quest is to get out of town, and the way this works is you run into uh, a father and son. The son is a ghost, I believe, is what's going on here, uh, and they're trying to let the uh, you know get the escape from the prison so that the petitioner we haven't actually talked about petitioners, but like um, so that they can move on. But they're being chased by the mercy killers. So this actually brings in a faction into one of these storylines, which I, I really like. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the factions, but they're, they're background elements for a lot of this event. So this is a great place to bring it in, especially if the players are invested. Like if one of them decided that, you know, like, oh, I'm a dustman or whatever. Um, and then they could have some kind of philosophical argument. Um, but uh, petitioners are a thing from the original Planescape that basically never get brought up to the point where I wasn't even sure if they were canon anymore. Um, but it's kind of when you die uh, and you go to the afterlife, you're like a ghost but not quite a ghost. You have like a kind of second life, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like you're still kind of you. And the book mentions that like if you keep dying, you get less and less like yourself. Uh, but even it's like your idealized self, right? Like you don't actually have to look like you were when you were alive. It's all very conceptual. Like a lot of things in this setting, it's all negotiable, you know, which I, I find is really interesting. But um, yeah, basically uh, that you find this father and son and they say, we know the tunnel out of town will take you there, but people are chasing us. And so you get to decide how to deal with that. You can just fuck up all these mercy killers or, you know, stealth or anything else. What is this deception to convince the mercy killers that Valder is dead? Stuff like that. You know, options. There's also some ot yugs. Love to see an ot yug. Uh, yeah. Like it, it's, I, I, I like the way that it sets up options for how to go about these things. Nice and easy. It makes it, I think it helps also spark, like if some if the players want to go to uh they want to try to in, put in a fourth way and break the rules of the rule of three, you might have enough material to kind of go around that. Yeah. So um, I just want to read here. Uh, Felic died in an accident in Sigil several years ago when he manifested as a petitioner who took the form he had in life. However, his body, while still corporeal, is semi-transparent like a ghost. So he's like a ghost, but not a ghost because we're in uh, silly land here. Uh, he wants to move on to Mount Celestia. He's good-natured but cautious and indecisive. So this is like your your little ghost friend you got to help. Um, it's funny. Um, um, I think we're going to talk about uh, Celestial a little later, and I had some some dice funk thoughts there. But like that's the introduction to this concept of petitioners, which isn't um... actually there was one previous mention in the casino. There was a hag who was trying to yes. win, win souls, um, which reminded me of you know, the soul economy was like a, a driving force of our season, and like it comes up here. Like you know, souls are like traded. There's um, oh my god, we're gonna have to talk about the fucking this, they play baseball for souls later. Fuck, I just yes, no that. shit, no. no, 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 no <laughs> Jumping ahead of me here. Yeah, sorry, I was going to spend an entire tangent on this fucking yes. thing here. We'll table it. We'll table it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. The next, the next one is Mount Celestia, the lawful good. It's basically heaven. They don't use the word heaven, I guess, because they don't want Christians mm -hmm. to be mad at them. But yeah, it's heaven. Um, when you arrive, there are a bunch of lantern archons. I believe this is how 
episode one of season six started, right? They were climbing the stairs in Mount Celestia and there was lantern archons. It was a slod that was trying to harvest them as opposed to uh, what's going on here. Do you, do you want to set up this little mission? Uh, there's there's a little bit of trouble in paradise or viper in the garden, as it says. Right, because this takes place in Excelsior, to be explicit. Like, uh, it's the gate town there. So um, <clears throat> let me go ahead and pull this up here. Effectively, you are approached by a hound. Is it Archon? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Archon. It's Greek for leader. Um, is what mm. that word means. I believe I used that as the paramilitary uh, company in season four was called Archon, which is a little confusing because Archons are also a thing in D&D, but it was for the religious symbolism because in um, Gnosticism, uh, the kind of beings that serve the false demiurge are called Archons. Um, so sorry, it's a roundabout way of answering your question, but yeah, they're, they're otherworldly beings, but the, the word literally means leader, I believe. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, so basically there's people who are disappearing from Excelsior for like, you know, disappearing from the town. They suspect somebody named uh, Sincerity and they basically kind of want your help to kind of figure out what's going on in that whole matter. Yeah. Uh, One thing I like about these uh, seven little quests is that they're all kind of archetypical. So there's like find the bad guy, escape from town and interrogate the suspect are like three really nice specific things because like you know sometimes the bad guy is like in the wind you got to find them sometimes you have the bad guy but you can't convict them you know it's like a it's a very different uh take on uh, on something that could be very similar right every every single one of these could be like there's a bad guy get him that's you know that's like uh, many D D quests boil down to get the bad guy but there are many different ways to get the bad guy and i think this one's pretty clever mm-hmm. I do like the fact that in this whole thing that the conclusion does even note like how it concludes either when when the character confesses to their crimes or your investigation reaches a dead end. It's like uh, it can just reach a dead end. It just moves on, which I actually kind of like as a note in there, Mm -hmm. honestly, like the fact that they can allow you to have a fail state but still move on is really nice. Um yeah, you just get more you get more benefits. If the characters get sincerity to confess, the hound Arcom seeks them out and uh, gives them a lantern of revealing. So, it's like a bonus, but yeah, it's um, you know, fail forward kind of stuff where it's like, "Hey, you didn't get them this time, but also you're not a detective, so <laughs> I guess you're going to move on. It's fine." Yeah, and so like it's basically like, yeah, it this, you know, it's just like a you have these people who've gone missing, you could find an individual's missing, get evidence from them, you could question uh sincerity you could go sneak around her home i believe you have the and like it's it, there's lots of different ways to go about it which again it's just a, a credit to the design of the campaign it, it's archetypal prompts but then allowing for a handful of different ways to go around it or fail at it and then still move forward yep uh, and so the, the crux of this whole crime spree is uh, sincerity is capturing uh, souls to give to a hag. I mean, literally the uh, subsection in the book is called the soul trade, which is, I mean, that's, I, there's many mm-hmm. times in season six where I say, uh, here's an aside about, I think I would say the soul economy, you know, it's, uh, it's very gratifying to see other people uh, follow such same lines of logic that I, I arrived at, you know? Uh, so I like that a lot. Uh, this it's very similar to what happens <laughs> in, in my uh, Celestia <laughs> bit there. Um, but yeah, eventually you either bust sincerity or leave, uh, which is, it's all, it's pretty good. And then we go to uh Faunel. Are you ready to talk about talking animals? Yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, Faunel is interesting because one of its main features is that the actual gate to the beast land is this pond. And so when animals, if animals like drink from it, they get, they get awakened effectively on the spot there. And if you were to jump into the water, you know, it, you, that's, that's the actual passage into the beast land itself there. Um, and I believe the main thing that kind of, one of the things that interrupts you while you're in the Beastlands is a pack of poachers, <laughs> null poachers, basically. Yeah, so the, the, they're called the Vile Hunt, which is a play on the <laughs> Wild Hunt. I thought that was pretty clever, uh, a little corny, but clever. Um, and then there's these uh, three factions of talking animals who uh, you know have different relations to the Vile Hunt. And you know, this is an, another case where if you boil it down, there's some bad guys. G you know, get them. <laughs> but there's different ways to approach it because uh, there's. Uh, I think the way it, the book uh, basically poses it is that there's herbivores, carnivores, and flying animals, you know, the three types of animals. <laughs> yep, there's, there's all the types of animals. There's, there's like, a, we, have, we have all, well, again, well, first and foremost, you can't be four types of animals, rule three. Yeah. Uh, omniv <laughs> omnivores are not allowed, I guess. Uh, but yeah, so you basically need to solve the vile hunt problem by talking to these animals, and the, there's little sections where it tells you what each of the animals know and what their you know opinions is. This is a very uh, it's social um, quest, which is fun. We like to do this on Dice Funk where it's mostly talking, which is funny because it's animals who <laughs> normally can't talk. Um, but it's all kind of a, a, an aside, right? Like as you mentioned, the pool that is the gate to the Beastlands is actually guarded by an Empyrean, which is like a demigod kind of thing. We used one of these in season six, and it's kind of unrelated to the animal shenanigans um yeah the, the guardian attacks any non-beast who lies refuses to answer or tries to use the gate without permission if the characters are honest about why they want to use the gate wrath the name of the empyrean allows them to bring them a mirror close to the gate like <laughs> if you just if you just straight up with this guy it's totally fine which i think is you, a fun you can circumvent all, yeah you can, that's not, this is one where you can have like the most circumvented thing you could do this all the way out you can describe the dolls and the Players can be like, eh, and just walk away if they wanted to. <laughs> um, but if you go through the whole quest with the gnolls and stuff, you, you get stuff. Uh, let's see, 1,400 gold pieces, a rope of entanglement. You get to see a triceratops, which is kind of its own reward. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, let's be honest here. Yeah, you like, you can. <laughs> uh, I just like, like the triceratops. Like, like, like triceratops is written right next to treasure that way. It's just really good. <laughs> yeah, uh, this whole section is really interesting because a lot of it seems like pretty optional and flavorful. But this, I guess, this is a good reminder that uh, while you're doing this, uh, several things are happening. One is that you're filling out this worksheet about your observation of the planes, and you can choose to do so mm -hmm. accurately or not, and that will come into play later. And the other is you're leveling up a lot. Um, yeah, we started at level three, but I th I'm trying to remember the exact structure. There's a little chart it, it, here. It, it, so, 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 yeah. So the structure is uh, for chapters one, two, three, and four. Uh, for each of those chapters, you go up a level. So by the time you get out to start exploring the Outlands, that's chapter five, effectively, you are already at, at level six at that point. And then. And then when you're doing the different gate towns, for every two gate towns cleared, you gain a level. So for chapters 5 through 12, you go from level 6 to 9, which is kind of fun um, to have it structured that way. 
Yeah, so your your leveling uh, like slows down effectively, but it, it's going to become important later. In fact, uh, on Speedpunk, when we read the uh, press release about this, I guessed something about the leveling that is 100% true, uh, which I thought was very <laughs> funny. I wanted on record that I was right. It's very petty, but it's true. Uh, Listen, you have every right to be petty here. So, <laughs> I mean, I, sometimes it's like, oh, I call something because I'm being cynical. I'm like, oh, I bet they're going to do this because they're, you know, uh, hacks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're losers. Uh, but sometimes they, I, I guess it because it's like, oh, that would be cool. It's what I would do. <laughs> and that's what that's this. Right. Um, I, I, I'm guessing that it had something to do with the fact that it's the more you kind of rem- you're remembering about yourself effectively or something to that line. It, it, well, yeah, it's because I in the press release it says it's a, a venture that starts at level three and ends at seventeen, and I was like, oh, oh yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I know what's gonna happen. Uh, so yeah, 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 yeah. For that part there, yeah. Um, I'm always a fan of like clean chapter based leveling stuff. I mean, it's one of the things where like again, the goal is just as you kind of move through these different towns, you level up as you go along. And speak about going along, I think the next faction, the next gate town we have after Fonal is Glorium. Yep, this is the Norse-inspired uh, gate town outside of Isgard, which I, I, you know, Asgard. I don't know if that's just like a variant spelling or you know pronunciation, or if there's like some reason they were avoiding it, the more traditional Asgard. I don't have that in my pocket, uh, but yeah, this is uh, you know people standing around, uh, you know, drinking and having parties and fun. These are all I'm imagining all these people wearing uh, the horned helmets that uh, <laughs> the Minnesota Vikings have, which aren't apparently historically accurate. Uh, but the gate that you need to bring the Mimir to is a whirlpool in the middle of a big body of water. Uh, the book kind of notes. It's like, well, yeah, the, the fly spell kind of solves this. <laughs> I thought that was very funny where it's like, you know, some players are going to be like, I have I have boots of water walking, so I don't need a boat. Uh, but then, uh, you know, there's some complications. Can I actually get your take on this? Because I, I was curious about uh, the, the way this is structured, where you like try to go to the gate either mm-hmm. uh, on a boat or, you know, with some kind of spell. And then some sea serpents come out. You know, these are, uh, you know, your classic Midgar serpents. We talked about Final Fantasy VII a lot uh, this mm-hmm. episode, but where is Sephiroth to impale the Midgar serpent? Uh, and then there's like a second quest. And I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what is the intrinsic motivation of your characters to participate in this second part. Um, some people just like adventure and will do it. I'm just curious. Did you see a mechanism to encourage it? Because it seems to me like if you take the boat to the portal, you synchronize your mirror and you could just leave. Right, because you're talking about the 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 Grackenock whole thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because like, right. So like, um, like I'm trying to figure out like when does even begin suggesting out there, right? Because like you have the whirlwind spotted, um, which and, and like it's just uh, the only way I could think of is that the reason why they're going there is because the boat you're on is just going to there, and they're kind of doing it as a detour to go to the whirlwind, right? Well, my, my, my read of this, it says, uh, whether on the courier, the name of the boat, or back on shore, yeah. blah, 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 Bacall, who is the captain of the boat, Bacall shares his concern with the characters and asks, oops, I hit my microphone, Bacall shares his concern with the characters and asks them to come with him to meet Tears of Bonebreaker. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm just curious from a, just a structural perspective, uh, is there any mechanism f- to stop your characters from going no thanks and leaving? I guess it's, you know, if that's their adventure, that's their adventure. Just usually there's a reason uh, for the characters to stick around. 
Yeah, like it, it's it, because I think it comes down to standpoint there. You, you just have to say like, listen, it's worth it if you do it, because this is right there. You know, uh, it leaves choice of the characters. The characters agree, and I think if they don't, they just leave. I think, I guess the way I would kind of frame this mechanically is that, you know, it, it kind of I, I sort of look at this as when it comes to the the homework assignment of the campaign, like writing the descript the descriptions of the different uh gate towns and stuff like that i almost like to think of it as the more that a player engages with the the town the gate town the more accurate information they could have about what it is oh but like yeah the, that's sort of the general way i kind of look at how this is structured is because the, the the premise is that you're the you want to have as accurate of a description of these things because the the impetus of the players might be that the more accurate information the Mimir has, the more likely you're going to find Rome or the more easily you'll find Rome and stuff like that. And so I think that's what it comes down to because the descriptions aren't about, they aren't about the planes. They're not about the gates. They're about the gate towns themselves. And... That's kind of what it comes down to. So I think the reason why players would want to go forward with that second part inside of uh, Glorium is because doing so, meeting the leader in uh, Gra uh, uh, Grakenach, uh allows you to have a more accurate description of it. And I think that's the same thing with Fawnel, right? If you go into Fawnel and just leave, then you have just a fleeting glimpse of what's going on. So your description might be incomplete or skewed if the players just go on their assumptions of it. So... It's a way of rewarding investing into the world itself as you go along. So that's the best answer I can give about why a player would want to do it. But um, the question is, are the players aware of that benefit? I'd have to double check back in like chapter four or so when we talk about the when we look at the, the, the memory and basically thinking like, is the accuracy conveyed as important for the memory? If so, I think that kind of closes that loop. Yeah, no, that's that's one of those things where it's like, uh, f from a game design perspective, you're like, it's obvious. I gave you a worksheet, but yeah, you know, right. sometimes sometimes it just slips your mind because you know you don't have the exact uh, train of thought that the game designer has. But you know, that's a clean, clean answer. Is <laughs> yeah, you you are literally trying to get an accurate uh, <laughs> write up here for something that's going to happen later. Um, yeah, so there's these sea serpents. I was a little disappointed that they use an existing stat block. I One of my favorite things is monster manuals. I love seeing uh, new monsters and their you know, yep. unique movements, but I think these are just giant crocodiles statistically. Uh, a little disappointing. They're called whirlworms, whirlpools. Yes. It's fun. I like the art on it. Uh, it's notable the boat is a giant bird it's like literally like odin's crow but with fucking seats on it it's a little body horror <laughs> yeah uh there, there's a lot of fun things about gloria but we, one thing we passed by was the contest that you could do in there so you have arm wrestling goat milking pin finger and flighting f-l-y-t-i-n-g which i'm just like great yes um, for those yeah. who don't know flighting is a, a norse battle rap <laughs> it's like the end of eight mile where you tell someone their mom is stanky uh, to, to win a conference com, uh, competition it's very good 
this whole thing is very is very nice, very fleshed out. Yeah. So you, if you you agree to go to Grakenok to save the barriers, we'll talk about barriers in the monster manual, but uh, save them from uh, some some guys. And if you do more damage than anyone else, this is a fun mechanic. You get the glory of the kill, and you get the big tooth, and you can bring it back, and everyone uh, throws you a big party. Uh, so yeah, it it, it uh, incentivizes specifically not not just winning, but trying to do the most damage, which I thought was very fun. Mm-hmm. That's a very Dan prompt to give, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I like that a lot. It's, it's one of those things where, like, usually the point of combat is just to win, but sometimes uh, throwing in a little twist can make an encounter more memorable. So that's that's mm-hmm. very fun. Uh, and you can get some uh, you get some items. Uh, a, a wide-brimmed hat of disguise is very on flavor because uh, Odin, you know, wore, wore, wore a big hat and often traveled in disguise. That feels like a specific Norse uh Reference? Any, anything else here? This is this is a really good adventure. Um, like I, I think it's a, it's a fun adventure overall. I mean, like it's one of those. It's an area where like again, it's like you look at it as like the good hearted competition, kind of digging into per a little bit of sort of this Norse flavored mythology and stuff. Um, and I think that again, it heads on another um sort of style of sub adventure, uh, like little um campaign arc you'd have where like oh, there's a competition, a competitive thing as well as defensive sort of work that you do. And yeah, it's it's a fun look there. Like you said, the most disappointing thing, honestly, is the fact that the Warworms don't have their own stat blocks. That's very, that's a missed opportunity, you know? Yeah. So I think you've been hearing my tone getting more and more positive as we've been doing this. Like after some initial trepidation and hesitations, I've just been like, yes, 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 sickos, yes. Uh, th- this next one, chapter 10, I think is my least favorite. Uh, Regis, the gate town mm-hmm. outside of Acheron, the plane of war. This is where season five ended when you fought uh, – the colonel in the skies above Acheron. But this one, and may, tell me if I'm missing something, uh, it's basically this town is under siege for, from an army coming through a portal, and your job is to fight the army until you figure out how they're so good at fighting. <laughs> and I didn't find the reveal that satisfying. Am I, am I being a hater? What did you get out of Regus? Rigus? R-I-G-U-S. Okay. Um I, like, yeah, because what you're talking about is the mid-battle deductions checks there. And it's like, I, I look at this, I'm like, where is the prompt to the player to notice anything unusual there, right? Because, uh, and is there like, unless, I'm trying to remember, there was like an, uh, a charge given to the players like, hey, help us figure out what's going on here. But I don't know if that's actually given clearly to the players, because then all of a sudden you have the mid-battle deductions there, and then... You have the the fake, the slides and stuff like yeah. It's like it's a war encounter type thing, but it, it's a it's just not particularly special. I forget what the exact twist is. There's a fake, right? There's a fake luggage that they they point out out there. Yeah, yeah. One of the sergeants who's on your side is actually fake fighting, and if you notice that, you realize it's actually a slod who has been shape shifted to replace this guy, and then the, one of the bad guys has a slod control gem. Is the, is the plot, and also it's like okay, having one guy in your enemy army is is that really giving you such intelligence that you are able to uh, you know completely turn the tide of battle? It, it's all a little right. uh, 
I don't know, contrived is the word that comes to mind. I don't want to be too much of a, of a downer because I realized that partially this is just a uh, change of pace from some of the more social ones to being a war one. It's just like, oh, mm-hmm. let's switch it up. You know, this this is the big mm-hmm. badass battle uh, session. And that's fine. You know, not everything needs to be a nuanced discussion of existentialism. What, what I would probably do to reflavor this is make it a dynasty warrior session, you know? Where <laughs> are you just mowing down hundreds of guys? <laughs> Exactly. Just hundreds of guys just mowing down inexplicably. And then like at that point there, you can then make the sergeants actually be relevant because they're the the size of the power is there. Like, but like you said, the making the encounter like an actual regular fight eh, um, doing some silly things with it to kind of really embrace the bizarre. This is a big ass war thing would be a little bit more fun for me, at least if I was running it. Uh, it's notable in the, it says the conclusion. The characters may, might have pieced together that Lugic was replaced by a slod spy. If they didn't, Major Kalar notices the control gem. <laughs> like, uh, this is, if, you, if, if your players are too stupid and NPC figures it out. Uh, not, not the sign of the best mystery. I mean, it's hard to do mysteries, right? But yeah, this, is, this is. is one where the writer is just like, listen, <laughs> sometimes you got some lunkheads at the table. Sometimes there's some real dipshits. And <laughs> there's nothing you can do. <laughs> just give them the dimensional shackles if they don't figure it out. Yeah. Uh, so that's my least favorite, but uh, let's see. There's like what two more. So uh, let's move on to Sylvania, the gate town of or- Arborea, which is the nature one. Uh, not to be confused with the Beastlands, which is animal. This is more uh, f- you know plants and forest. This used to be an, an elven flavored um, outer plane. They've shifted a little bit on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the books actually none of these three books really touch on the idea that like each of the planes has like an iconic specific species. Like the Eladrin used to be. Uh, from this plane, but the, I don't know if that's even canon anymore. They've moved things around a lot, so uh, for sure, Sylvania is kind of uh, just like nature and party plane. People are just they're just uh, having a little rave. It's Burning Man out here. Yeah, I was gonna say Burning Man, but maybe less dystopian in some ways. <laughs> a lot, probably in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> there's no, I don't think any explicit combat in this one. It's literally there's a demigod who's uh, really depressed and bringing the vibe down, and your job is to like cheer her up. Uh, that's mm-hmm. pretty much the whole thing. Um, so it's it's a social uh, puzzle basically. You got to find out uh, about her. Uh, uh, insecurities. <laughs> I think it's literally what it says. Uh, I just like I just like because it kind of just goes over like Titanic pain, <laughs> like my share the following truths and a quandary about her life. Just like you just try to cheer her up, and then she just becomes a downer every time it starts becoming fun. Just like oh, why you got to bring that up? <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple. Fun. There's a couple different party activities you can do. There's a parade, there's a dance, and you're just taking this very powerful person around and trying to cheer them up uh, so, so they don't become a big problem. Um, uh, as soon as you do that, uh, I think you, they take you to the the well where the gate is, which is uh, normally hidden. I, th- I think that's the whole thing is that like this is another one where you can't just go to the gate. The gate is unknown. So you got to do this specifically so someone will show you the gate. Um, and that's it. That's that's a kind of a break. Those those. It's a good contrast. The the big war, which is kind of brain dead, and then the only talking, no fighting one. You you go over to play some skull bocce, you know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so like uh, I think that's the last one of these uh, gate towns. Of oh, the um, gate towns. Yeah. But 
Yes, this is where we get. So you could tell I was really liking the open world section. I was really impressed with that. Uh, my my heart was open, and then I turned this page, and <laughs> I realized this is the best D and D book of all time. <laughs> this is so fucking good. Okay, okay. So yeah. the title of this section just angels in the outlands. You have my attention. Yeah, I'm already this picture. I'm just getting it framed. Are you kidding me? This is so good. This is, I mean, for the audience, anyone who knows in the Discord has probably seen uh, an idea you had for a character. Which, I mean, I, I feel like yeah. this is your moment to shine. This is so sketch code. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So for those that don't know, in for season five, I was trying to brainstorm character ideas before the suggestion to have Conrad join came up, and it was just too good not to let him on. So I had to step down for that season. But I had a baseball character. Um, funnily enough, like I, I basically saying like the ancestor for Treyan, basically they were they were uh, they were named Carmelo. They were a baseball player. I was going to develop an entire baseball league with minor leagues and stuff. And then this this just this motherfucker walks in with fucking uh, Spire Ball. Yep, they tweeted it <laughs> and out. Spire, and and Spire Ball just it's like I love how my if I was going to do this the goal would be to describe Spire Ball for as long as possible without someone just say is this just baseball? Because <laughs> you, you like you read a gigantic flat diamond it's three points marked with squat pedestals shimmers with, within a ringed field and I'm like. This is going to be the, the, the Dread Gazebo. Someone's going to try to attack the diamond and get killed <laughs> by a fly by a fly out, you know? There's literally a section here called batting. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, have, you have a quadrone named G-O, G041, so goal. So it's the wrong game. There's no goals in Spireball. There's runs. Oh, uh, um, yeah. A D20 is a home run because a 20 actual 20 is a home run. Of course you have the two teams, the righteous hands and the noxious stampede and they're fighting over the rights to a singular soul, right? It's a singular soul. Yes, the, this is the soul economy coming back. Oh, before before we get any further into Spireball, I should say chapter 12 is like a, 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 a smattering of things that can happen between gate towns. So we I love it. Yeah, we've been presenting this basically going from gate town to gate town to gate town in your walking castle. God, I forgot that detail. You have a walking castle as your base. Um, but there's never been any mention of what, if anything happens between them. Like, it kind of feels when you're first reading it like you're teleporting, which isn't ideal. It doesn't give a great sense of place. But no, you can run into a, a baseball game between the noxious stampede and the righteous hands. Um, and I, I, my heart, it's, I could not believe how good the, this the, is. The, the, the mirror quote for this is just, if you think you're prepared for the ultimate struggle between good and evil, the deciding contest between all that is righteous and all that is foul, then I tell then to you, I say, play ball. Just, yes. The, the, the humor here, we're back in the cakers, right? This is, this yeah. is cakers like shit. The, 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 you, have, you have the picture of their star player just holding this mace-like thing, and it's just an it's just like... Oh, it's it's so good. I the section was so funny because you can either join one team or the other as a player, but you can't join both. You can't split the party, or you could choose to help to not be on either team and instead just help from the from the bleachers and stuff. And it's you got the noxious stampede who are just like described uh, like described as sore losers and insufferable winners 
Yeah, and their pitcher is uh, one of the the evil elephants. We're going to talk about the monster manual, who I, I really liked. But he he you know, shoots fastballs out of his trunk. This is truly <laughs> Looney Tune hours. It, it's like, but like it, that's the best part. Like the fact that it just embraces Looney Tune hours play so well. The fact they have this like these evil things fighting up against a Deva and a bunch of arch- archons, and are like just doing this sport thing to choose a to get the rights over a soul. I'm just like. Oh man, it's just too funny. I, yeah, I'm I imagining the, res- the kind of D and D player who hates this. They're like, "This isn't Drizzt to Erden would never play Spireball," <laughs> and this is like, "I don't know what to tell you. You, you don't. You, we don't have the same values. <laughs> we are fundamentally different people. This is incredible." I, the, I have to spoil the ending because I love it too much. We, the, because basically, either the Stampede win or the Righteous Hands win. Sure, um, if the Stampede win, they're just the most obnoxious. They do brags and celebratory gestures. Probably make obscene hand gestures and stuff. They throw trash on the field that they're standing on kind of energy. And you get an ever-smoking bottle. If the Righteous Hands win, great. But if the characters reveal they help the Righteous Hands from the sidelines in some way, Shariel still awards the chalice, but shamefully notifies the Modron umpire. Uh, the, umpi- the angel asks for a rematch of the year, saying cheaters never truly win. Oh my god, yeah, they're total nerds. <laughs> they they're only want to win fair. <laughs> and, and I love the fact that a tie game, the Souls fates delayed for another 300 years. Both teams are visibly disappointed. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. I, I wish, it, in hindsight, because the season six was about the soul economy, I don't really want to repeat that plot point, but uh, I am disappointed I didn't have anyone play a high-stakes sports game for a soul. That would have been sick. Oh um, man! Well, there's there's always opportunities for other high stakes sports games. I love Spireball so much, though. It's just it's it's peak. I like I like the other encounters they have out here for Chapter Twelve are fine, but my brain deleted them from my yeah. memory once I saw Angels in the Outlands. It was too good. That's it's funny you say that because I was like, in any other adventure, the other uh, kind of big encounters between the gate towns would be highlights, but they're all overshadowed by Spireball. Literally, the next one is about a fucking time dragon. Uh, it's like a yeah. challenge rating twenty eight or some shit. It is like the most dope looking fucking worm they've ever conceived of, and I was like, yeah, but he's not a third baseman, so <laughs> not sure I give a shit. <laughs> what 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 is what's his- What's his OPS? Come on. Is or oh, he's a pitcher. What's his ERA? You know? Yeah. What's his WOBA? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel very silly about this, but it's like I want to skim past some of these other ones because they're not as good. But yeah, uh, one of them yeah. is a multi part quest where an adult time dragon comes to you. This is a dragon, obviously, that, uh, you know, is mm-hmm. uh, wields the power of time somehow. It gives you an item. Uh, and then in another, you know, another t- uh, scene later when you're traveling again, uh, a younger dragon comes to you. Uh, I think that's a, that's a pretty clever little twist there. And then it's like, oh, mm-hmm. the dragon is experiencing this out of order. I mean, this is uh, River Song from Doctor Who. <laughs> this is literally much, yeah. what happens there. Uh, so that that whole quest, and then if you if you help the dragon escape from the person who's chasing it, uh, you get an item where you can summon the dragon later. That's that's fun. It's it's it, it would be really cool if it wasn't next to 
Spireball. <laughs> so it's not fair. Uh, and there's you you meet a grove of the most uh, meat-headed Chad lizards. Is another one. Did you? How did you love the lizard folk competition? I love this illustration. It's so I love the picture for it. It's so yeah. good. It's so funny because we were talking about the Brolympics at the end of season nine. I'm like, well, this is just the Brolympics energy right here. Just yeah, you just you come across this bog full of lizards, and they're all j- j- fucking jacked gym rats and you can like do competitions with them um and if you do good enough you impress the god of lizards who comes out and quote thinks you're amazing <laughs> he thinks everyone's amazing <laughs> I, I, I like i like the quote here from the uh, the memoir it's like what's my secret well i died but then i started working out and started seeing serious gains yeah this whole thing is uh king badass coded just absolutely plain- oh yeah <laughs> Planescape just lizard folk in particular is just a little bit too on the nose there, but just like it's it's like I said, this 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 adventure is so fun because you can just kind of explore your own pace and not and kind of linger on some of these areas. So yeah. So th- those are like the three main uh, storylines that can happen in between the gate towns are the baseball, the dragon, and the, the lizards. But uh, chapter 13 puts us back onto the main plot. So uh, mm-hmm. we are running long. I, mean, I don't mind. I talk about this for hours. I love this shit. But uh, yeah. if we're, we're going to wrap up the plot here. Once you go to all the gate towns, your Mimir says, oh, my data is f- compiling. Uh, I know we're rome the mojon is did you audience did you forget that we're looking for a mojon named rome uh that was listen, my, no, listen, my listen. concern <laughs> my my concern is, is rome is rome the size of a soccer ball can i kick him into a goal it can- <laughs> yeah uh, but yeah, that that was your quest many sessions ago. Literally, like I imagine, if you're playing this week to week with your friends, it would have been two months since talking about Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, but you find out where he is, which is the. Sp- uh, at the spire in the center of the outlands upon which the city of sigil is placed if you'll recall the structure of that uh there's like a big spire and at the top there is a uh taurus t-o-r-u-s which is like a ring mm-hmm. like a, that sonic might collect uh mm-hmm. but yeah at, at this the spire itself is the home of the Rilmani, which are an extremely obscure creature i did have them in season six if you'll recall sweet audience uh nifix <laughs> wasted a bunch of them um because i was using their second edition stats when they are kind of just like people they're like humans they're kind of um smooth and featureless uh i think during the episode someone made the joke that they're the the neutral aliens from uh futurama do you remember this mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah yeah I have no strong feelings about that either way because uh, they're where there are, you know, every alignment has kind of a, a an iconic or representative creature like angels are lawful good. Demons are chaotic evil. Modron are neutral. Uh, the real or the, they're lawful. Yeah, lawful. They're, they're 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 lawful. I think they're just lawful. Right. Because I think they have issues with good aligned people. They're yeah. just lawful. Yeah. The Modron are lawful. The Romani are neutral personified, uh, but they have been given a major overhaul here. Uh, mm-hmm. I, if you if you just Google Romani R I L M A N I, you're just going to get a picture of kind of just a guy. <laughs> and if you look in this new monster manual, one of the things I am most uh, impressed with is what they have done here. They have made them kind of living kind of crystal they they specifically remind me of an artist i'm gonna look up his name because he did a lot of magic gathering art before becoming so popular he was literally mm-hmm. more uh profitable to do his own shit um while i look that up though well what, t- tell the audience about arriving at the spire and meeting the real money 
you got it here. So, um, the, and again, the reason why you're going to the spires is because that's where Rome went. So you start trying to go there. When you approach, uh, basically, uh, the you basically come across this community called um, uh, Den uh, Dendratus. I think is what it's called. Uh, Peter Moorbacher is the name of this artist. Uh, it's kind of hard to spell, but if you do, you will immediately see what I believe. I don't have any evidence of this, but what I believe is the direct inspiration for the uh, redesign of the Romani. Peter mm. does uh, these uh, something called Angelarium is like his big project. It's a book I believe he's released. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if you if you're googling the sketch. I guess I can put the, his name in the chat for you. Moorbacher, M O H R B A C H E R. But his illustrations all have this. I literally used a, uh, a Peter Moorbacher painting for the Norn when they showed up in season six. That's the oh, the, okay. The Norse uh, fates, kind of like the you know, there's the Greek fates. There's a similar thing in in Norse mythology called the Norn. But they're they're these like eerie, featureless giant creatures. Um, I don't have any evidence that this is the specific inspiration, but it's really close. Uh, and they're much more powerful, uh, this version of the Romani. Um, so we can continue with that, this. I just wanted to note, this is for me, one of the biggest shakeups I feel to like the Planescape status quo is that this, mm. this, this, you know, creature type has gone from just kind of like boring guys who don't have opinions to like uh, challenge rating level 12 beings of pure crystal death. <laughs> so... Uh, challenge rating 17 for the biggest one. Holy shit. Yeah, and, and in the manual, the the biggest one is depicted as just huge, just like just like it's the it, it's it's wild there. But yeah, so basically the main thing I'm thinking of is the fact that you have a Romani that's looking for Rome as well. And because Rome is deemed to be like this huge metaverse multiversal threat. Um, so it's like, you know, after not thinking about Rome for months, all of a sudden you're looking for Rome and, oh, Rome is a problem here, apparently, <laughs> you know? Yeah, the players won't know this immediately, but the real Mani are looking for Rome to kill him. And once he does, they do that, they're going to kill players as well. This is something that, like, the DM knows the players don't, is that the Romani see all the glitched people as a threat. My favorite detail about the Ro the, the Romani you deal with is... The following line here. She asks if Rome is with the party and gives an aw shucks snap of her fingers when it's clear the Modron isn't. <laughs> yeah. Just, like the super friendly uh Romani comes up to you and like you said, if you uh if you if you aren't careful, you're gonna get caught off guard when they realize that we realize you're gonna try to kill you. So Yeah. This this is a really compelling to me. I will note that there is a like two-sentence thing in one of these books, uh, maybe we're coming up on it, where the Norn are mentioned. I, I don't remember the exact context, but I thought that was interesting because the Norn was something I I included, which isn't normally in Dungeons & Dragons, like, uh, you know, minotaurs from Greek mythology, giants from Norse mythology, all like mm -hmm. uh, everyone gets thrown into the pot. I always thought it was weird that was one of the things that wasn't. Um, but if the Romani are now how I was picturing the Norn, I think that's actually really cool. And I also mm -hmm. like that they have a kind of incongruous, silly demeanor because of they're mm -hmm. like these p beings of like extreme power. They're like crystal. They're they're like they can like you know stand athwart a mountain, and then they're like, oh shucks, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's Adventure Time good to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and then you have I'm sorry, inside the spire, desert of rust, just a little memory from elsewhere. Yeah, you go on a little dungeon crawl through uh, the spire. I will before we get to Rome, who we're about to find. There's mm-hmm. one section here that had me hooting and hollering, which is the secrets of eternity. Did you? Did mm. you? Did this jump out at you? Uh, I I need to get to there real quick. There. Uh, yeah, there's a you meet a Baronoloth who uh, 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 you know you can have uh, share a forbidden secret. Uh, the Barnaloth speaks in a language the character doesn't know, but somehow understands. If the character lets the scholar speak for a full minute, the character's mind is flooded with terrible knowledge. And there's a D4 to find out what the terrible knowledge is. And one of those is Dice Funk. <laughs> this is page uh, 74, bottom left. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, just the are you talking about the entire multiverse being inside an impossibly vast bag of holding? No, that's that's four. The f- number one. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Aspire is made of countless stacked versions of sigil from past incarnations of the multiverse. Yes, that is that. <laughs> yeah, of course that one there. That's- it's literally the reveal of season seven, which is very funny because I know some people have said that like, oh, it's a it's a little complicated. Um, but it's very funny that, that a dark secret of of Planescape. Is that it's a made of every version of Planescape stacked on top of each other. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what else to say. Dice Funk stays winning. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that. I thought Dice Funk in terms of just like it's very silly, but but yeah, yeah, yeah. I get your point there. Gosh, I also just like the uh, the eyes of the impossible uh, charm there because there's just a little thing you. Uh, it's just like yeah. Yeah, if you if you get the forbidden if you get the forbidden knowledge, your eyes turn black, uh, and you get advantage on persuasion checks to interact with evil creatures. <laughs> so you become spooky. You become spookened. You become spookened there. Um, let's see here. I'm double checking. Yeah, the next we have the darkness, and then we have that's when we find Rome right there. It's in, is in the the we was dealing with the dark weaver. Yeah, this is so. Where has Rome been the entire time? They've been captured by Shelob from Lord of the Rings. I, I found this a little underwhelming. I don't know if we need to linger on it, but basically, there's an evil spider, which isn't my, yep. uh, you know, it's like a, it's kind of a cliche in video games. I don't know if you know about this, but like just that uh, when you, you know, a bad video game is like, oh, what are we going to have as enemies? Oh, I guess big spiders. It's just like such a go to thing. Uh, the, the Dark Weaver isn't you know, completely boring, I guess. But I, I, did you find anything here that sparked joy? I was a little disappointed. Not particularly. I mean, the, the, the main thing here is just the, not necessarily the mild of, of the contrivance of like kind of showing up when you are able to help Rome. Um, I mean, granted, Rome is roaming around. So one could argue that like Rome just was the next town over or something as you were traveling around. But like, it's, uh, it's, it's like, it's a little bit of a it's like after some of the highs we have earlier, it's a little bit of uh, a down point, but like not that not going to be too worried about because we has have, you know, <clears throat> uh, we have then have to deal with just like uh, uh, just getting out of the spire and moving on with the rest of the adventure. Once you get information confirmed from Rome that contradicts other characters and all that fun stuff. 
Yep, the second act twist, you save the Modron, and uh, it tells you that Shemshaka, your quest giver, your fixer, was lying the whole time, uh, which you might have been tipped off if you realized her home base was called the Room of Lies, I think. <laughs> what was it? The, the, do you remember that specific detail? I was like, uh, not hiding it particularly well, homie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, forget what the, yeah, I forget what the exact name of it. it is. The House of Liars is what it is. Yeah, the House of Liars. So yeah, the the twist is that Shemshaka didn't send you after her accountant, <laughs> which I think is the yeah. lie she tells. Like, so it's uh, like, yeah, the, 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 yeah, like Shemeshka is a liar. It's like, like weren't you her accountant? No. Uh, what? If you're not her accountant, then who is? She's running a casino. There's got to be an accountant there. Yeah. So at this point, you get you're given some flexibility flexibility about how you return. I presumably you can fart around in Sigil some more if you want. Maybe if you've uh, you know built up some personal quests and stuff. Uh, none of your characters have memories, so there's not like backstory stuff. But you know you can fuck around until you're ready to trigger the point of no return, which is us uh, going back to the casino. Uh, there's a, a the, like the high rollers level, the mm-hmm. platinum rooms. So there's actually more casino than there was before. You're going to play some new games. Uh, what's your, what's your favorite uh, detail of the, the platinum rooms? I have one that I have to talk. One specific one that, you know, came to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just do love the fact that just one of the areas is just called Dungeon Land. I just that that, that was mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it's just like you just have a name in there and it's just it's just very it's just it's just so in the casino, your D&D players can play D&D. Uh, it's very funny. Uh, it's like you sit there's these big crystals that everyone can look at and uh, bet on uh, adventurers across the plains doing D&D stuff. It's like, it's like you can imagine that uh, this platinum room is uh, in a crystal in someone else's thing and you know so on forever, like the uh, marble at the end of Men in Black. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Dungeon Land is very funny thing there's also just like gladiatorial fights and so, you know there's other shit you can do here mm-hmm. i well the last detail i think about dungeon land is imagine a sports bar but instead of having a bunch of different sports playing it's just a different bunch of different campaigns and you're just betting on all of them it's just fantastic uh so eventually you know blah 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 no need to belabor it you get to shem shaka shemesh shemeshka shemeshka yeah yeah i'm sorry well she's about to be dead or gone so it doesn't matter anymore yeah uh, <laughs> uh this section literally called fate of the multiverse uh so what is her plan what's the deal why are you glitched here at all, everything comes out this is the final dungeon this is the final boss what's up what's up? actually there's one more there's one more section yeah. I sh- i'm lying shemashka right. Shem, she's she's not the final boss, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. So basically, yeah, you you basically find out that Shemeshka is the one that actually killed you originally. Like twist, like twist. She actually killed you. That's why she was looking you down. And the and the reason why she killed you is because of like, uh, I remember why she killed. I I don't think um. It says the characters independently ran afoul of her some time ago. So she has been killing your player characters for different reasons across time, uh, repeatedly, uh, for like not related reasons, basically. She, the, you were just some fucking guy she keeps killing, and you keep waking up and coming back to her without remembering it. Yeah, yeah. And, and then she has the imprisoned incarnation, the actual like final incarnation of your character that will restore you to your full self effectively 
Yep. Quote, she has killed each character dozens of times. She finally trapped each using the resplendent cage. So this is the thing I guessed from the press release when I saw that you're going to end up at level 17. I said, uh, you're going to keep making new incarnations of yourself. But I bet at some point you all join back together and level jump, which is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of different ways this can uh, kind of roll out. I think you, you, I mean, she is statted. I think you could beat her ass if you want to, but also she will teleport away if, uh, you know, it goes a different way. So, uh, you know, this is the big confrontation. You're like, what's your fucking problem? Uh, and she says, you keep showing up here. Why are you doing this? Leave me alone. I don't know you. Um, and then you get your, you, uh, you know, get yourself back. Everyone goes to level 17 and then you find out why, uh, you're glitched and what's up with, uh, Rome. So mm-hmm. what, reveal after reveal after reveal. Yeah, and and this and you mentioned about and we talked earlier about the great Modron March and it just it comes to that, right? That is like the big thing that is the, that's a, I would consider that grandly as the final boss effectively is resolving that cleanly. Yeah, so every X amount of years, uh, all the Modrons go on a big uh, survey. They, like, roam around the multiverse collecting all this data, and they bring it back to their plane. This is the plot of the famous book, March of the Modron. Uh, But some of them are trapped, and they're getting corrupted. They need the new data. This is why you've been filling out the worksheet, because Mm -hmm. uh, you get a chance here to uh, make a bunch of Modron think something is true. And in Planescape, if enough people think something is true, it becomes true. So uh, let's set up the final thing. So uh, you get all your memories. You're at level 17. um, You get a bunch of items. um, There's this, you know, you're kind of setting up for this big thing. And then we go to uh, the final location here, which is uh, the Tyrant Spiral. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, One of the things I find fun about Tyrant Spiral is there's a side note here about the fungal observers that will comment Mm -hmm. on the characters when they fuck up in a fight. (laughs) <laughs> and stuff like that yeah so yeah th- this is um, th- th- this is kind of a conceptual location here I don't I don't know if uh, we want to get too much into it but uh, you need to go to the realm of Gizmonid another one of these fucking goddamn yeah. pronunciation things this uh, but there's a portal that says the location is up to you thank you book it's <laughs> um, very helpful um but yeah you basically need to go to this place where all these modron from the the march have been trapped and they've been um going in like in a circle basically the uh, is is that you think a fair description of what's going on or is there's all these robots yeah. who are just like caught in a loop and and, and and the scale is important it's thousands of modron it's not like a handful it's like a, a sizable portion of the march has been sort of it's like the the electrical line has been severed, you know. The internet cable has been cut out, right? The, some unplugged the fiber optic modrons from the connection here. The modron um, are caught in the shifting realm of Gizminidid, fuck, a beholder god. Uh, blah blah blah. Shemeshka discovered the modrons in the tyrant spiral, an ever shifting part of Gizminid's realm. So there's two things here, right? There's the realm of the beholder god, and inside is the tyrant spiral. Sorry about all the fucking terminology uh she exposed the modrons to fiendish influence convincing them the outland outlands are overrun by evil beings so the more you if you convince these robots something is true it becomes true that's the whole thing with planescape shemeshka was trying to do that uh because she's a bad person (laughs) she's a villain uh Mm -hmm. and now now that you've either killed her or driven her off now you get to be the person who manipulates these poor robots yep 
And you can choose to gaslight them if you want, I guess. But <laughs> I will say that the uh, the map of Tyrant Spiral is pretty sick. It's just it's like so wild looking. Um, yeah. There's teeth on this platform. It's uh, made out of skulls and shit. Yeah. This is a very spooky location. Um, but yeah, it's just, this is the actual true uh, end game uh, final final dungeon. This is the bonus dungeon. Uh, you have to go through this. It's very long. We don't need to belabor all these, these yep. sections because it's, it's a crawl. This is the more, more traditional kind of D&D. Uh, and then you uh, end up with a uh, kind of final boss here, which is uh, the Modron X-01. This picture is so fucking cool. It's so great. Like, it is definitely, like, this is definitely like, true ending boss vibes, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't even think you have to fight this, right? Mm-hmm. You can convince it. There's a whole thing here. Uh, the Modron leader X-01 isn't just damaged, its mind has been overwhelmed. This is a result of the flawed orders it received when it left Mechanus, but more because of the misinformation it gathered in Tyrant Spiral. So, a character who spends one minute investigating X-01 can find a panel leaking green vapor, uh, blah, blah, blah. There's like a lot of stuff you can do here that isn't just throwing down. Uh, and then you can replace the data and there's um, kind of s- several different options here. So there's uh, you can give it accurate data, inconsistent data or skewed data. And those mm-hmm. all have a different effect on the world state. Like this is like the end of this adventure. But then presumably you can keep playing um, and, you know, uh, the, the world will have changed. Uh, for example, chaotic. Modrons more vis- vigorously oppose chaotic beings. Modrons become more hostile against chaotic beings and expressions of law- lawlessness. S- stuff like this. There's an illustration of uh, Modrons delving into uh, looks like hell. <laughs> They're fighting in the blood war between demons mm-hmm. and devils. They're just in the sky. They have flaming wings and they're shooting guns. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like they're like yeah. badass now because of you. Yeah, and it's like one of those things where yeah, effectively have these different endings, and it's not just like one specific choice. It is the culmination of your your party's interactions with the Outlands, and understanding what they are. And like you said, that's where the the payoff for the homework assignment is. I do like how there is a difference between accurate, inconsistent, and skewed, and then for each direction skewed ends up going can cause different things. Um, the uh, it, it's it's. And it's also interesting how like how all the skewed outcomes do have like some negative consequence of some sort. Even say, oh, appeasing their lawfulness. Well, then that means chaotic beings have less resistance, so they're going to be more aggressive and stuff. And then maybe you have to do more to fix things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the way this ends is uh, kind of you know similar to a lot of Planescape stuff, where you, the power of belief changes the world. Uh, you know, I have a lot of feelings about that. Um, and then there's a little epilogue where it talks about the different characters who can have feelings about this. Rome can be a friend to the party or not. Pharaoh, that spy all the way back at the beginning who helped you escape the cops. And then if Shemeshka is still alive, um, it's very funny that it mentions uh, if your interference uh, accelerated uh, the blood war, she sends you a polite thank you note, which is very, <laughs> very bitchy. Um, and then the... Literally, the, the campaign ends with a, with a kind of a fun little... It's like a Marvel after credit scene. Oh, where, absolutely. Uh, you get a message from the Lady of Pain. Uh, so she sends you a little cube that you can use to make portals. Because, you know, you're the main characters. Go on more adventures. 
Yeah, exactly. You're you're basically now now your end game characters. Let's go. So yeah, that's the that's the campaign, and for two and a half hours into this recording. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I had fun. I feel like it should be clear from our tone. This, I, I, I'm not uh, claiming the authority to make this like unilateral proclamation, but I think it might be my favorite, if not the best, of these type of books. I just absolutely. I, I, I loved it. It's creative. It has a lot of flexibility, but also a lot of specificity. Uh, beautiful art. Uh, I want to steal tons of shit from this. Every couple pages, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm using this. Um, so, uh, at the risk of you know over overstating it, I'm like, oh, this is the best <laughs> book. <laughs> this is the best D and D book. Pretty much, like it, it, like it lacks in player options, but makes up to so many other areas. How much do you want to spend talking about Mort's Planar Parade? Yeah, I mean, I understand we should probably wrap this up. I do want to hit a couple of things real quick. Uh, yeah. If you are if you are good to go. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, all right. Mort's Planar Parade, the monster manual. Disclaimer, everything in this book is true, except the parts that ain't. The planes change. Qu- the planes change. Coins and threats adjust a few details. Boring bits get more colorful. You know how it is. What's what? You're a cagey sort chief. You'll figure it out. Uh, once again, everything is negotiable. The power of belief. Love that stuff. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to go through every you know monster in this manual. I have a couple ones I wanted to point out specifically. One you brought up earlier was uh, you know with uh, the Ardlings. So I want to discuss mm-hmm. specifically anthropomorphic people and creatures. Well, let's yeah. start with this because uh, there are a number of them in this book, and I feel it muddies the design somewhat. Uh, that there are so many. For example, the Archons, which are like a lawful yep. good creature. There's a bear person and there's a dog person. Uh, but then they try to also have the Gardinals, which are animal people. And there's simply, for my money, not enough design space there. There's not a big enough gap between mm-hmm. what are supposed to be pretty distinct like ecosystems does that make sense like if the no if, uh, well and I, what muddies it further is that archons and gardinals are both celestials they're both animal types and the only meaningful real distinction between them is that archons are lawful good and gardinals are neutral good you know it's just like that's it, it's tough right because i i would say it, what muddies it even further honestly is the introductory chapter to this book in my opinion um yeah Let's say more about that. So the introductory chapter has a section after talking about petitioners called planar influences. And it's a pretty extensive chapter, a section that goes over describing creatures from the various outer planes and how basically those outer planes can make variants of creatures. So basic, and it goes even further than this by after going all, all these different traits. So for an example, uh, if a creature is from, let's say, the Beastlands, um, they, traits they might have might be trackless. They don't leave tracks when they move around. Um, they have the ability to see invisible creatures or they have the ability to speak with beasts or plants. Um, once you get past that, then you get to the denizens of the Outlands. Oh, no. If you, yeah, yeah, you get to denizens of the Outlands, and it shows variations of aberrations, beasts, celestials, constructs, dragons, elementals all of whom are being influenced by different outer planes. So we go to the dragons. You have an example of a regular ancient gold dragon versus a fairy dragon influenced by Mount Celestia, uh, another dragon influenced by Hades. 
And it sort of looks like the Cardinals and Archon thing could have been unified underneath just one race with different planar influences. And that split's a little weird when it's the Archons versus Cardinals. I feel like that might be just an import from prior editions, but I agree with you. Because um, there's so much content in that Denizens of the Outland section where it just gives you a lot of ideas of how all these creature types can have variations that are wild based on the planar influences on them. Yeah, so this is like a templating issue, right? Because right. D&D loves to have this thing where it's like, here's an elf, and then there's a dark elf, and a wood elf, and a high elf, and a light elf, and a star elf. You know, you're adding templates to something iconic, and it helps fill up pages in a book you're trying to sell. I get that. Like, I'm not I'm not against that idea necessarily, but it does mean that there there's a lot of this book, which is already a pretty short book, <laughs> that is uh, just versions of already existing things, which is a little disappointing. So, mm-hmm. that, like, that that's a major quibble I have here. Some of the other stuff is, like, legacy issues. So, like, in my ideal version, version of D&D, each alignment has one iconic thing. So like lawful good would be angels, neutral good would be cardinals, and then chaotic good would have been Eladrin. That was like the thing that in second edition, but there's been like drift over time. The Eladrin became planar as opposed to like, you know, uh, otherworldly and the cardinals disappeared for years. We, we previously talked about this, I think on some kind of podcast where I was like, you know, the, the furry community would go bananas for cardinals. They're, they're so mm-hmm. <laughs> flexible and such a great well, concept. That's my complaint about the Reddit ads that almost are like fur bait in terms of like, oh, here's this mouse cardinal player options not included um and, and, and to your point you have the avorial cardinal which is distinct from the aracocra which is distinct from the owlin and stuff like that and yeah like templating if you see if you see like a the dog archon and the horse cardinal side by side how would you not think that there's different kinds of the same thing you know mm-hmm. um i would much prefer if lawful good was all angels some of those you know could be like the humanoid the winged humanoids from you know, medieval art or whatever and some could be like the wheels covered in eyes that like they, they dip their toe into with the lantern archon i mean in season six i brought in more actual biblical angels than the, the book prescribes but uh that's a cleaner divide for me than having there being random anthropomorphic animals in several different alignments and then not implementing the Ardlings. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to speak to the Ardlings again, but that was a thing that was planned and then apparently yeah. canceled. It was it was initially planned. I think the tricky thing with Ardlings was one, the naming scheme of it may sound too close to just um, Asimar um, I, I, for some people. I think the other issue that some had was just that the they were kind of vaguely defined because I think a lot of people would look at would think about their initial description and think that they were meant to be evocative of like Egyptian deities I could almost think of like some of the Amonkhet deities and how they would kind of that like when I think of like templating for why I envision it it's like well the different deities in Amonkhet feel appropriate as to what Ardlings are kind of derived from and so when it came to describing Ardlings in detail within um, Rezubian uh, I was kind of playing light with it because I didn't want to one invoke too much about like the planes. I didn't want to step on anything about seasons five onward that might have been like misstating about the state of soul or anything else. But also, I just wanted to keep things up in the air since Ardlings were existed in one form. They got revised another on Arthur Kata, then it just got scrapped from the PHB. And like you, it would be neat to have seen even like a reference to them as a concept in the book here, but they're not mentioned anywhere in here. 
Yeah. Uh, so a couple other quick hits. Uh, the Bariar, who are like the uh, one of the iconic, or not even iconic necessarily. They're just kind of the uh, the common folk of uh, Eastguard. They're basically centaurs, but goats. Yep. Um, I kind of had one show up in season six almost as a joke. Like I didn't draw too much attention to it, <laughs> but like the idea that like uh, you know we we did centaurs and then we f- filed the 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 number off and tried to pass it off as a new guy. Uh, I always thought it was a, a little silly. I, like. I, there needs to be a couple more iconic new creatures. Um, sure. Another small quibble I'll note. One of the glitch character depictions they have in the adventure is a a barrier variant of the character. It's depicted as a barrier variant, but it's not a player race, right? So it's centaur, but like it's another one of those things where like it's a weird like templating thing and also weird presentation thing on that part there. Um I think you would other... use the centaur stats from the Theros crossover with Magic the yes. Gathering. That is correct. <laughs> um, I will. All, I think there was also a reference for the centaurs in the Ravnica book as well. Oh yeah, possibly. But um, one thing I'll note as a general commentary beyond that is another templating thing. Actually, but it's a mechanical templating. Uh, this is kind of like a little bit of an elephant in the room in some of the communities. Um, none of the creatures in this book have legendary actions because watsi has been phasing them out as a design point. Oh, interesting. Do you know why that is? So my assumption from reading comments and stuff is that the concern is twofold. Number one, our players who will see these legendary actions being used and being confused about how they interact with turn order because like, okay, they get an action outside of their turn in between turns and stuff. And the second concern seems to be that for some GMs, remembering to use them or using them tactically is a little tricky. So what has been happening is that creatures that would have legendary actions instead now have multiple reactions per round. So if you were to look at the uh, the Bernaloth, for example, the Bernaloth now has three reactions per turn. Uh, per round rather, and they have the and the reason for the reaction space. The main argument in favor of, and I can agree to this, is that it's easier for the GM to sort of know how to use it. It's almost like it's like reminder text on a Magic the Gathering card, right? You know, afflict despair. When a creature that the Bannerloth can see hits, an, hits with an attack roll, this happens. Or if a creature that it sees ends its turn, it can do this, right? That's the type of design space it's in now. Um, they still have legendary resistance, but there's no longer legendary actions for any of these creatures. And if you look through this book, that is the case. And this was also the case in the Giants book as well. Okay. Yeah, that's almost doesn't even seem to be uh, that big of a mechanical change, just more of a reframing because you still uh, break the one reaction per round rule here. Correct. Off can take up to three reactions. So like, it actually isn't that different. It's just a different way of framing it. Right, it's a, it's a te- it's like I said, it's a, like a templating and framing thing. What's also interesting is that there are some creatures that don't have legendary resistances, but have um, multiple reactions per turn, and there's some creatures with legendary resistances but no multiple reactions. So it allows for an extra little bit of variability in that design space too. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a change that the more I've been thinking about it and the more I've been hearing other people's arguments, I'm like, yeah, this is fine. It's just a, another way of framing it, but some people have been getting a little up in arms like, oh, man, this is such a great space. Like, I like legendary actions, but this might be a cleaner way of presenting it for sure. Yeah. 
Uh, so to move through a couple more creatures here, I, like I said before, I was un- underwhelmed by the Dark Weaver, which is a challenge rating 10 spider. Uh, there's no demons or devils, which I think is okay. Those are really overrepresented, but they did have a bunch of Demodans, Demodans, which are the uh, Carceri fiend creature. And f- oh, this is another, maybe I'm just being nitpicky, but this is another case where uh, if you put a devil, a demon, and a demodan next to each other, <laughs> I don't know that there is any visual language for distinguishing them. I wish that they had a more uh, distinct identity. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it, it, it kind of speaks back to, like, the MTGs, like, the strength of having, like... And, and again, I can understand the aversion between having, like, uh, the the stereotyping that can come by associating a particular, like, creature to a particular alignment but in this case here, we're talking about alignment, uh, uh, orienting the planes, not the planes operate. So you can even dissociate a little bit from that. Um, but like magic has that clean language where for each color and even color pairs, you can associate specific creatures to it. And it, it makes it easy to understand and it makes it easy to mount, to mold around and play with as you are um, working with it. So I think that is a... Uh, it's it's a miss it's a and that's really a missed opportunity but I do think it muddies things overall between the Gardenals, the Archons, and the uh, the Demodines. Yeah, this is one of those things where it's like in real life, uh, you know, it, animals are you know diverse and have wacky uh, things, and some look like other ones. It's not a big deal, but in this kind of fiction, I feel like it would scratch a certain brain itch for there to be cleaner. Um, you know, for for there to be some kind of creature that I've never seen before, or it doesn't look like any other creature that represents Carceri, especially since so much of Planescape is about this like symmetry. You know, it's like there's a plane mm-hmm. for every alignment, there's a, a faction for every philosophy. Um, so yeah, if if there was something a little bit more unique for the Demodans, I mean, this is also something. It's just like oh, we we created the Demodans thirty years ago. It's too late now. Uh, right. But yeah, j- uh, just not impressed the with their their design the art's fine but yeah. uh next up i want to talk about the eater of knowledge which is a we missed a big opportunity to have this in season 10 because this is a, a mind flare adjacent creature it's an anthropomorphic brain um honestly does it it, it serves uh, uh, <laughs> it slays my favorite, de- my favorite detail about <laughs> it are the goggles strapped on its face um in the is art. that what those are i thought those were just eyes uh, it looks like you looks like there's some straps coming off the side of it and going over, right? So it's like it's uh, goggles. Okay, yeah, definitely. I well, can it, see it, that. It, it's easy to see why it has no like eyelids, so those eyes are going to dry out too quickly. Otherwise, yeah. oh my god, yeah. So th- this is a uh, you know something created by the mind flayer god. We actually, I think I said it offhandedly in, in this season uh, that the mind flayers have a god, but they don't like him because <laughs> mm-hmm. they're they're just not religious. But yeah, they've it's a what if a brain was a giant? Uh, I just think it's funny. I think it's a good image. It's it's in it. It's something that uh you know you can add to the uh, illithid menagerie if you want to mm-hmm. do an illithid based adventure. We talked about the Gardinals. I wish the Gardinals were, you know, a, a bigger faction in all the. I, before th- you do, stuff. I have to note one other detail, like about the Eater of Knowledge. Uh-huh, when you first yeah. encounter it, you roll a d10 to determine how many brains it's already consumed. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's great. Uh, the, there's another inevitable. They've put like one inevitable in every book <laughs> for like a couple of years now. Like, there's never been a section that's just like, here are the inevitables. There's like, uh, what was the Marut was in a previous book? Yeah, uh, it was mm-hmm. in uh, Monsters of the Multiverse, and now we have a Kolyarut. Yeah. 
which is uh, a very powerful. These are like uh, challenge level 20 and above. These are people who do not fuck around. They're, uh, yeah, we, we've discussed them before. They've shown up on the show, but here's here's a stat block for one. It just mm-hmm. looks like a four-armed robot. And mm-hmm. then we get to the Maleficent. First of mm-hmm. all, it looks like it looks like it's attacking Carlac from Baldur's <laughs> Gate, which I I don't like. Uh, but th- uh, this struck me <laughs> the the idea of the evil elephant man. It's because I mean uh, because of magic uh, crossovers, the Loxodon exists. So if you wanted right. an elephant guy, you could always have or you could have an elephant guy. But specifically the the malephant, the bad elephant who has noxious uh, poisonous gas from its trunk. It looks like it has five eyes. It's very eerie. Uh, I. Just this whole thing uh, rocks to me. <laughs> I think it's cool. I, I, I look at this and, that, and I, I don't think it's attacking Carl. Like I think it's attacking Tybalt. Honestly. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, the Malefant shouldn't work. I think it's kind of silly because it's just like once again, uh, anthropomorphic animals are spread across so many different uh, monster types that it can get frustrating. But this this art looks cool. The the their use as they're like they were guards in uh, the Gate Town of Cursed. I just think they're cool. Uh, that really works for me. And then there's a bunch of new Modrons. I, f- I feel like we get a couple Modrons every once in a while. Uh, but the, these ones are, there's one with a bunch of like little tentacles. There's one that's kind of like a weird worm. And then later there's like a fucking mech suit one. So mm-hmm. uh, Modrons take a big role in this adventure. It makes sense that we'd see more of them. We've already talked about the Romani. Do we have anything else to add there? I, I love their redesign. The art's very evocative. Um, they, they sucked before. People forgot they existed for like 20 years. I feel like I was the only one who said the word Romani into a microphone <laughs> until recently. No, I mean, like, then you have the stat block for, like, the, you know, Meshka there, the sunflies, which are cute. Yep, they're cute. That's all there is. Yes, they're cute. Yeah, this is reminiscent of the Bumble Sloth from uh, season seven. They're they're like uh, kind of fuzzy uh, insects with the f- faces of sheep. I want to say is what they're supposed to be. Yeah, uh, something. Yeah, they're definitely sheep like for sure. I mean, and then once you move on to the time dragons, you get the sickest art of the ancient time dragon. Just frame that on the wall. This might be where we end because yeah, the end of the book has the iconic uh, NPCs or like the the representative NPCs for each of the factions, which is fine, but we talked about that already. The Time Dragon, though, gets two pieces of, like, uh, 70s van art. <laughs> you know, this is like a, a, an album. Have you ever seen uh, the band Asia, the progressive rock band? Their yeah, albums. yeah, yeah, for sure. This is Asia shit. Uh, there's two of them. One is, like, it's full resplendent glory. It kind of has, like, uh, uh, a, almost like an antler situation, which is really sick. Yeah. Uh, just beautiful original art. And the other one is it using its uh, time breath, which is a funny concept because like if you're hitting someone with your dragon breath, you could just uh, annihilate them. But if also you want to fuck with their place in the fucking space time continuum, that's a funny thing to do to someone. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the time dragon is just dope. It's like uh, an epic level. Yeah. Challenge level 26. So this, this thing is fighting Tarasks. Um, uh, luckily in the campaign, it's your friend if you play your cards, right? But yes, right. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, like it's one of those cases where like, yeah, the faction ages, they look cool, but the time dragon, man, you know, dragon is in the name of the game, right? So they've been trying to top themselves for years and years and years. I think time dragons have appeared before in the game's history, but never as cool as this. Like, uh, it's, it's just, the art is extremely fun. And, uh, you know, the power, it is like overwhelmingly powerful. You would never fight an ancient time dragon unless you just wanted to, to see what happened to see how badly you were stomped. Mm-hmm. 
I, I, I want to get a I want to get a time dragon to join my spireball team. Okay, that's what we want to do here. You know, just yeah. A, a quick Google tells me the time dragons were previously printed in third edition, and I don't mean to be cruel to the artist, but uh, not just does not. Uh, bring me the kind of joy this new art does. I don't want to be mean. I'm, you did your best, but this new shit completely washes that third edition shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like jo- John Tedrick is the artist for the Time Dragon. Both the pieces of art are John Tedrick, uh, Tedrick in. Yeah, just nails it. It's just so, so cool. So yeah, like um, I, I, would, I guess get from our, our demeanor, like the beast, the the bestiary and stuff, like is fine in in. Uh, more to play in a parade, but like, yeah, it's probably the weakest of the three just by that nature of what it is. Um, though I do like the introductory chapter. There's a lot of fun in there. Yeah, I I, I personally collect monster manuals, like even non D and D ones. I have a bunch of like uh, Pathfinder ones and stuff. I just like seeing pictures of monsters. It's like half of my whole thing with uh, Magic the Gathering as well. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a little disappointing for me. And I just have I don't know if this is just like uh me being uh like. OCD about it <laughs> just being like no there should be well, a specific design that's distinct from the silhouette from you know for each uh, alignment and for each fat like maybe that's not the way the world works and I should stop being weird about I, it I, 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 yeah yeah you, you don't want to play who's that gardenal you know just yeah I don't want some jigglypuff from above shit on here but uh <laughs> there, there's also some great highlights uh the Romani are back in a big way it's really cool stuff like that so um I yeah, three hours on this product. You can tell I've had a lot of thoughts about it. I've done almost nothing but read since these books showed up. Uh, I, I can't wait to go back to Planescape now. I'm really excited. I don't know when it'll be, but it's gone from me saying, like, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, maybe we'll do it again, to being like, yes, 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 yes. I'm excited. So I guess that's a successful product. Yeah, like I said, like, even uh, even being disappointed about the lack of player options there, the other stuff is very inspiring like of all the different settings and stuff we've had books for you know this one has just really hit a lot of points in my head really well and like even just the first book sigil and outlands was great there's so many fun little things about for uh the turn of fortunes wheel which i think can ultimately work well for either experienced or new players once you get past the glitch character opening there i think there can be a lot of fun to be had there um and even at its lowest point, I'm like, it's weak by almost by proxy of what the stuff around it, um, because some of the stuff just goes so high. It goes so wild. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, yeah, when you introduce the spire ball, it's like, well, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> so. <sighs> Bunch of nerds. <laughs> All right, so if you're listening to these episodes as they're released, we are um, nearing the end. So this is going to be you know, your weekly episode. The thing that just happened in the story of uh, Resubian is uh, Yaush's plan is revealed, and we're going to deal with that. And then uh, you know, there's a, we're on our way to, to the conclusion. So enjoy that. Uh, thank you for listening. If you sat through all three hours of this, I hope it was something for you. I had fun. Yeah, I hope, and, if, and, and if you have complaints, just at me on the Discord server, you know, just just – Come at me. <laughs> <laughs>